0: warning according to the podcast listening data which we only recently looked at in between five and ten percent of people don't keep listening after the second theme song this is extremely mortifying to us because we often put a really big and complex sketch there at the end that we're really proud of that like to think it's like when the episode comes together so if you're one of those people who wasn't aware of the bounty of extra sketches that you were missing out on especially in the social ecology series Go back and check those out before you listen to this episode. I mean, it's really going to help make this one come together. Uh, Thanks for listening.
1: Welcome everybody to Social Ecology and the End of Capitalism, part two, which is part three of our Social Ecology trilogy.
0: I also think it's an episode one of its own in a way that, you know, this is something that can stand on its own right. And I think in some ways it's the
1: dialectical, what's the word when they come together of the first two episodes? Sublation. or Sublation. Yeah, thank
0: you. Yeah, sublation is differentiation towards the good, specifically. And I do think this episode meets that criteria. All seven of our guests are back.
2: Haya Heller.
3: Peter Staudenmeier, Grace Gershuni. Blair Taylor. Brian Tokar.
2: Eleanor Finley.
1: Dan Chodorkoff. Once again, speaking together on the topics on social ecology, there's so much to get to.
0: So without further ado, the curtains are already open. I say we just rip right into it. Let's go. So on the note of
1: dialectical sublation, of synthesis, we're going to kick it off today by asking a question. In the first episode, we argued that the ecological crisis is a social crisis and that the idea that we can dominate nature and the idea that we can dominate each other are related. In the second episode, we argued that a naturalistic ecological politics, a non-hierarchical mutualistic politics would find its furthest expression in direct democracy. So if direct democracy is the solution to the social crisis of hierarchy and domination, does that mean that that's it, one and done, we implement direct democracy, the ecology gets better, everything's perfect then, that's it? Well, no, yeah, that's not the argument, unfortunately. If only it were so simple, I guess.
4: When you study philosophy, this idea of something as being a necessary set of conditions versus a sufficient set of conditions is a really important framing device because it helps us to figure out, okay, when I'm putting this principle out as really, really important, am I putting it out as something that's a sufficient condition for a free society or one among many necessary conditions? Direct democracy, rebuktion, is one of many necessary preconditions for having a good and ecological society. Direct democracy by itself could be a direct democracy of fascists, you know, governing themselves according to fascist principles that could be patriarchal and racist and Authoritarian and awful. So, direct democracy is only as good as the content of the charter upon which the democracy stands. And by charter, I mean some sort of constitution or set of principles that the people in the direct democracy stand for and are held accountable to. Some of those principles would be social equality and freedom, sort of social justice, this idea that people have to be free from heteropatriarchy, ethnic hatred, racism, xenophobia in all of its forms, the principle of non-hierarchy, so that any proposal in a city, town, or a village, or in a municipality, that any proposal somebody would put forth would have to be accountable to the principle of non-hierarchy, looking at complementarity between genders and physical abilities and their needs as people living in the community. Ecology is another principle that's kind of at the heart of social ecology, this idea that instead of undoing ecosystems like the horrifying fires that just happened in Australia, humanity could actually play a constructive and elaborative role in the larger natural history that we're part of. Ecology has to really be at the center as a principle so that when you're going into your citizens' assembly as a communalist and you're advancing a proposal for how to build your road or how to build your co-op, or like your school, you have to, again, be held to the principle of ecology and say, to what extent is this project going to elaborate on and enrich the natural history, the natural world, the rest of the natural world that we're part of?
1: The moments in nature where there's simplification, where there's destruction, are moments in nature where the boundaries of ecology have been violated. And so we see that increasing freedom comes not from blowing past all limits it's, it's conquering
0: nature by blowing past the limits of nature yeah, sort of
1: taming nature like, nature is this brutal oppressive thing but we can oppress it and be greater than it and from that we'll gain our freedom we'll gain freedom from nature but there isn't freedom from nature because we're within nature freedom increases in nature when the limits are being respected and we see that and we see that if we want human thriving in a human society where people are taken care of and when there's enough and where we have a circulating abundance that can provide for people what they need to not just survive but to flourish and thrive we have to respect those limits we have to work within those limits and that's it's not a contradiction
0: Yeah. And I mean, that applies in that if we don't respect the natural limits of the world and our pursuit of freedom beyond the bounds of nature, we could lead to the total abolition of our freedom by self-extinction, involuntary self-extinction. Yeah, (laughs) But it also applies to the political realm. And this is sort of a key idea in how direct democracy functions within social ecology is that by setting limits, by setting reasonable limits around what's up for debate and what the purpose of a discussion is, you can have a more productive conversation and by that be more free to come to collaborative decisions. This concept of the forms of freedom is very, very related. The idea that staying within the boundaries of this institution will enable everyone's freedom within it beyond our concept of say like the freedom of the open road or something like running away. Like a lot of people think of freedom as a running away But interestingly, the first written record of the use of the word freedom is from the context of a slave revolt in Mesopotamia, where some of the earliest writing is found. The first use of the term freedom, if literally translated, means return to mother, which is just so fascinating. The first time we can trace the idea of freedom, it wasn't just running away from the people who are wronging you, although that was part of it in a slave revolt, right? People are wronging you, you're running away from them. But it wasn't just running away without adjectives, it was running away to return home.
1: It's also true that a mother or a parent in general enables the freedom of their child by setting boundaries for it, by making sure that they don't stick a dime in the wall socket
0: or put their hand on the stove freedom in the sort of american libertarian sense would imply that the important thing is to let the baby have the freedom to put their hand on the stove let me make my own decisions The, the context of a baby when we're talking about what's meaningful about freedom i think it's really centering the right part of the discussion which is like a baby's freedom to grow up learning the base knowledge that will protect it from harm i think is a lot more meaningful freedom than willy-nilly touching whatever stove you want because you feel like it.
1: Yeah, it's the freedom to grow into a full adult with your body intact and your mind capable of dealing with the challenges of the world. That's the ideal outcome of a childhood. So when we're talking about a society and the political bodies that are used to govern our day-to-day lives, having mutually shared understandings, like declarations of rights and like constitutions, you know, like... As horribly as these things have been implemented in our current society, these are the kinds of limits that can allow us to work together towards our ideal political outcomes. When I think about what the actual difference is between anarchism and communalism, even though I know a lot of communalist libertarian, municipalists do identify as anarchists, and there's probably anarchists who would agree But that seems like one of the biggest distinctions to me is this idea that we would strive for like a kind of global constitution that has a set of principles that like where this society can decide together through a bottom-up process of direct democracy. What are the non-negotiable things we all need to agree on for this to work? Because one of the most classic arguments against direct democracy is, oh, what if the factory full of white people vote to oppress the black people? That's against the constitution. You can't do that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's so interesting that we get that question as utopians, but no one ever asked the question like, how do you make a hierarchical workplace not racist? Because that one's actually relevant to your racist workplaces. So in order to enable the mutual freedom of everyone involved in a democratic process, you're going to have to rule certain things out ahead of time, like dehumanizing other participants, bringing up questions of whether we should be stratified into different groups of people with different rights, for example. In a horizontal society, that's something you'd want to rule out from the drop. In an
1: ecological society, you'd want to rule out dumping toxic chemicals into waterways
0: people use. You'd want to rule out destroying massive amounts of... For- like, And this, this all flows from pretty simple and agreeable first principles. So you can set up a constitutional system where there's a declaration of rights and responsibility, and there's a second order thing that's based on interpreting that in specific. And then you have mechanisms for in the process when those lines are crossed to prevent decisions from being made that have impacts in these ways. It's a process, right? Being is becoming. It's an experimental process of trying things out, remaking them. There's going to be lots of complex issues that arise on the way, but I have total faith in human beings' ability to confront those challenges and overcome them.
4: Another necessary principle that has to be part of any kind of direct democracy is moral economy. And moral economy refers to any kind of economy that exists prior to capitalism or that exists today outside the capitalist system. And in this case, in a direct democracy, the economy would be in the hands of the municipality, of the communalists who go to the citizens' assembly as citizens to plan their economy, to plan what their values are in terms of how things are going to be produced and distributed
3: we want to abolish the economy as a separated sphere of social life at all. And we want to subject these very mundane decisions about what we produce, how we produce it, and how we distribute it, dissolve them into the political realm.
4: And workers might have, you know, limited autonomy over their working conditions, etc. But it would really still be the community, the citizens in that city, town, or village. They would be the heart of the economy, directing it, planning it, trying to improve it.
5: My own preferred vision is modeled where there's a lot of small-scale cooperative enterprises of whatever sort, and one of the main ways that they're able to interact with one another is through a larger municipal framework in which everybody gets to have a say, regardless of the particular workplace where they happen to spend more of their time, or the particular neighborhood where they happen to reside, to try to transcend their own particular and personal points of view and work toward a more general perspective of what will be best for the
3: community as a whole. We want to get rid of this as a social sphere that's based on scarcity. We want to get to a communist gift economy, although in updated form. We think that we can produce enough easily and automate a lot of it, where people have to work very, very little, where work is totally redefined to be things that we like and enjoy doing. I mean, it's one of the ironies of history that even though automation and technology have been eating into new jobs, that hasn't liberated us from capitalism. It's just meant more precarity and more austerity.
4: Post-scarcity is one of my favorite ideas that Bookchin developed. The thesis is that By hook or by crook, industrial capitalism by the 60s had developed a kind of technological precondition for production that could eradicate material scarcity globally. And thus, all poverty and hunger and deprivation, all scarcity, is 100% politically fabricated.
0: Post-scarcity is, in part, the recognition that we already live in a world that isn't fundamentally governed by scarcity. There's a common economist sort of myth. You know, the world is so scarce, there's not enough for everyone, so we need to invent money and barter systems and all this sort of stuff to figure out who gets food and who doesn't. Post-scarcity points out that's actually not the case. There's always been enough food for everyone, or at the very least, the potential to create enough food for everyone. Through the natural history of humanity, we've lived in a world that had a cornucopia, an abundance in relation to us, and what artificially limits people's access to things is property relationships, hierarchy, and contingent cultural institutions. Post-scarcity isn't just technology becomes really good and then we have post-scarcity or something like that. It's also qualitative changes to social relations. How do we treat things? Use of fructian and property relationships and making sure that people always have enough. And part of making sure that people have enough is making sure that people don't have dreadfully far too much. A
1: lot of people think that to have post-scarcity it means that you have to have an infinite amount of everything because like people say that desires are infinite but it's actually impossible for desires to be infinite because we are finite beings like what would it mean for me to say i want an infinite amount of cake it's like i can only eat so much cake in a day an abundance of cake and an infinite amount of cake are very different things. An abundance of cake just means more cake than I want to eat. That anytime I want to eat cake, it's there for me. Infinite cake would be like a conveyor belt with a new cake every second, constantly moving and like dumping the cakes in the garbage and new cakes are always coming. And it's like, even that's not infinite because you could calculate how many cakes it actually is.
0: So just use a really small example. If you have a society of 200 people, and every person needs a bed to sleep in. And you have 201 beds. You have a functional post-scarcity of beds. You have more beds than there are sleepers. But the scale of post-scarcity that we're talking about on a societal level goes a step further and says, not just is there 200 sleepers, 201 beds, but as the amount of sleepers increases, the system is designed to ensure that the amount of beds is always outpacing the amount of sleepers. But not just when it comes to beds, but every aspect of human existence, more or less. It's possible. And it doesn't mean that you make a gold-plated mansion for all seven and a half billion of us. It means that needs are always provided for and that we develop social systems for sharing the things that there's a finite amount of.
1: Technically, post-scarcity doesn't require any technology at all. Throughout most of human history, we existed living in smaller bands of people that looked out for each other and that made sure that everyone in the group had a place to sleep, got to share in the food that was gathered, the abundant bounty of nature that was around them. Like throughout most of human history, you're only going to experience real scarcity when something goes wrong. They actually did less work during the day than we did to have enough food and stuff to live. They weren't doing eight hour days. The ongoing kind of drudgery of there never being enough is something that really comes into existence in human history along with the state and with capitalism and with the idea that some people can hold massive amounts of resources for themselves because they're a king or because they're a lord or because they're a self-made businessman, however you want to call it. Scarcity is something that is enforced. We could have had, in most situations, for most people, enough food, shelter, clothing, etc. for everyone, for most of human history.
0: And not only that, but we live in a technological era where technologies are increasingly making it so that we can achieve levels of abundance that have never been seen before in history. We can provide a higher standard of living to everyone on Earth for a lower ecological cost than we're currently doing for the first time in history.
1: Smartphones, computers, internet access, education, global transportation, these are all things that can also be made post-scarcity. And automation technology is a big part of how we can create a post-scarcity future where the relative abundance is much more full and diverse and flexible and just bigger than the relative abundance of being in a hunter-gatherer band where there's enough food around all the time.
4: And Bookchin really said humans have the ability to use what he called technics to meet our material needs in such a way that we can reduce the amount of labor one has to do during the day and that would leave human beings to enjoy life, develop activities that are enriching the arts, intellectual, scholarly interests, etc. But most importantly for Bookchin, a post-scarcity situation creates a precondition for full participation in a democratic society. You don't have to have it. Bookchin didn't believe it was necessary, but when people are living in a scarcity situation, it strains people mentally and physically to be able to have the energy and the time to really participate fully. Bookshen really felt strongly that part of a post-scarcity society was one that addressed people's desires and their qualitative inclinations, not just their material needs. So it's providing food, but not just bread, maybe cake as well, providing not just plants to eat, but roses as well.
6: On the one hand, I completely agree with the post-scarcity perspective that we have the economic and technological capability to do away with a lot of the limits that have constrained the ability of people to be fully actualized. We have the ability to do away with the kind of onerous toil that shaped most people's working lives throughout the first 150 years of industrial civilization. But we also, if we're gonna focus on living well, if we're gonna focus on the quality of life, we also have to do away with this mindset of consumption for the sake of consumption and production for the sake of growth.
3: Once we get away from producing things endlessly for profit and for accumulation, which is just so irrational and unnecessary and producing for human need, that will already solve so many ecological problems, both in terms of like resource use and waste distribution, just the waste of having to sell shit constantly to perpetuate ourselves is just so fundamentally irrational.
7: There are very few technologies that aren't also possibly dangerous or harmful, given the wrong applications. But there are technologies inevitably that are more dangerous and harmful than others. And so that's the distinguishing factor here. What has got more potential for being ecologically harmonious than other possible ways of accomplishing a particular task
4: to refine our technologies to make them ecological. We wanna go beyond just sustainability, the idea of not ruining everything. Permaculture is a great sort of metaphor and example of ecotechnology that literally creates more and creates more diversity and does a lot with a little in a very aesthetic kind of way. So there's this really beautiful understanding of technology as being able to enhance rather than destroy the rest of the natural world to literally create the possibility for the fullest expression of direct democracy while also allowing human beings to create an aesthetically meaningful and ecological technology that would enrich societies and the quality of life and to create a more desirable society, not just one free of need.
6: I don't think there's any conflict there. You know, we can actualize the potential that exists for people all around the world to live well. At the same time, we can live sustainably. We have the ability to transcend those limits.
4: So all of those elements, those are all principles that, you know, when I teach this, I make a five-pointed star. You have to have direct democracy based on a principle of non hierarchy social equality and freedom, oral economy, ecology, and ecological technology. And there really isn't one principle at the center. They're all really related to each other. When you bring those all together, they form this beautiful gestalt that does provide a sufficient condition. And I'll end that by saying that sufficient does not mean it's a done deal. Sufficient means you now have the potential to have a directly democratic, socially just, ecological feminist queer positive lovely society I means so we have the potential for that
0: and now for waking up from a coma after the end of capitalism <coughs> what's a hospital where Oh my god. Where am I? You're awake. <laughs> you're awake. Hey, it's uh, hey. Who who are you? Dad, it's me, little Shawnee. Oh my god, I'm how a grown man how
1: long was I asleep? You're all grown
0: up. You're you're so big. Oh, Dad, you've is... been in a coma for fifteen years. Fifteen years. I just come here to read on weekends. I didn't know oh, I expect you're reading. you to wake up. That's really cool. That's
1: that's great. You're just just a little tyke. Well, we got to catch up. I mean, I want to buy you something. Where's my wallet here? We'll head down to the <laughs> hospital shop. I'll buy you a Dad, gift.
0: I'm going to get my wallet. <laughs> sorry, Dad. I'm sorry. You just sound like a super old dude. There's no wallets. You oh, don't have a credit
1: card. Mine's expired, obviously. It's 15 years. My credit card's expired. Okay,
0: well, yeah, your credit card is definitely expired in that sense, but it's also expired in another sense, like a world historic sense, because we no longer use credit cards at all. Let me get. Oh, I'll, no. We're just going to call in for some hospital food. Food. Oh, I don't want
1: hot. It's probably terrible.
0: Not I dead. don't. We don't live under capitalism anymore. Hospital food's the best food there is. There's nothing more important than right, nourishing
1: so, people back to health. Wait, wait, wait. When you said it was the end of capitalism, I was assuming we'd slid into some sort of eco fascism. Are you saying it's the end of capitalism in a good sense?
0: Yeah, not just like revolution without adjectives, like the revolution you'd want to have. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about getting here either. I can tell you the details later.
1: And so you're saying the food in this hospital is optimally nutritious and delicious. Yeah. it's As it would be in like a functioning society.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because it's hospital food. It's got a lot of nutritious quality, like more than average. I mean, more than you need, honestly, but it's a real treat. This is the thing you got to understand about food now. It's not a commodity like when you're walking down the street people will like be trying to offer you food as a way of getting your attention to like their ideas or their gadgets they want to share with you and stuff not because they want to like get anything from you but because they're passionate about it i mean it's sort of like this what is the word i'm looking for here M- market marketplace oh i've been reading in my head market plachi. that's so embarrassing
1: I just can't imagine the world as it exists outside this room right now. Are you saying that you've been raised in a system where you're educated on how to fully participate in democracy to deliberate with others and arrive at conclusions together in a productive way?
0: Oh, sorry, Dad, you're going to have to repeat part of that. I wasn't paying attention. I just got a notification. I was selected to serve on a democratic jury to talk about and determine the wing sizes on the people's planes, eco planes, obviously, they're carbon negative. And, you know, with the carbon positive boat fleet, the cancel each other out does the app recommend whether you take a boat or a plane
1: based on whether you need more or less carbon
0: yeah yeah stuff like that like all the time yeah this wing plane size thing i wouldn't think that being in a randomly selected group of like 45 people weighing on it including a 15 guaranteed experts would be so interesting but like i'm sort of like an expert on planes in general now from this it was sort of cool And people praise you for doing it. It's socially esteemed to participate in this process, and the binding voting period is about to close, and they just wanted to confirm that I wanted to stay with my previously logged vote and that I hadn't changed my mind since then, since it's about to close. And actually, I'm gonna stay with the original plain wing size based on what I've learned over the last couple of weeks
1: is everything in this society produced ecologically? Like there's no pollution from factories. Everything that is an output of the production process also is like food for the environment, a useful input. There's no such thing as trash anymore. The ideology that you can just throw things out has been abolished?
0: Yes. More or less, yes. But the, there was just a report. We've got a really great active journalism sector and so things are being uncovered sometimes around this. People... Mm. Groups, I imagine
1: you're discovering new externalities all the time. Yeah, and in
0: some cases, you know, groups and organizations, we've found existence of willful wastes that have recently come to light in a certain sector. And a lot of people are really mad about it, but that's the deviation for sure. I just don't want to say, "Oh, we're perfect angels; everything always goes great. Right. There's never any little problems here and there." Right? You have to problem solve all the time. I mean,
1: I'm assuming you don't have like a soul-crushing job that you go to 40 hours a week no. every week, eight hours no. a day, that you have to do the same thing over and over, that keeps you isolated from everyone else, and in a state of like kind of chronic. Alienated loneliness. That's all gone, and you exist in some form of neighborly web with others, like being productive together?
0: Yeah, I mean sort of. But I mean just to give like a broad sense, if you can imagine I got here on an eco train. The eco train runs on a fuel that outputs CO2 and clean drinking water. And the clean drinking water and CO two is funneled underground the tracks of the eco train to these massive food towers that are constantly growing food with the most optimized processes to continually produce this sort of abundance. And then all the waste from that is then pushed into yet another system, which increases biological diversity in a local river system in a predictable way that we understand pretty well, or the scientists understand pretty well. But I mean, I read about it and you can read about anything, like if you want to know about something. You're always allowed to know it. That's sort of Mm, a big principle. And you're also welcome to participate in it, to participate in things that you don't know about, because our belief is that by working together, we can come to even better conclusions. Like, there's a reason I'm voting on plane wing sizes. That's not because I studied planes in school. Yeah, so that, like... Everything's a library now. It's like a big library eco-community. Everything's a library. It's pretty good. Complete circuits, right? Like... Waste equals food. And, oh, and the, and the, in the end. Borrow and return.
1: Right, right. Oh, yeah. And the chronic loneliness? Well,
0: it's funny. If you say loneliness now, it's become... Loneliness is so low in actual existence that people use it as an exaggerated way to say that they're slightly uncomfortable around a social situation. Sort of over the last 15 years, the meaning has distorted because there's yeah really vibrant communities and also just there are ways of intervening at very early stages of the process that bring people into more isolated ways of being that there's like non-coercive ways to ease them out of that have been systematized when i was young when i was a teenager i had some friends who found me through my loneliness in a way using the system within the school so like people befriended me based on need and they became legit friends like i was a literal like best man but we were set up from this thing.
1: That's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. Okay, so this is my last question. A lot of us back in the day when we were shooting the shit about the end of capitalism, we'd have disagreements about whether it would be one way or the other way. I kind of fell down on one side. Your mother fell down on the other. How is she, by the way? Still alive? Oh yeah, still alive. Oh great, can't wait to see her. Is the post-capitalist society far more luxurious than the wildest dreams of even us in the capitalist society?
0: Yeah, and even, no, you covered it with the Wildest Dreams thing. Because it's different than I think you would guess, having went into a coma before it. Can't wait to see it for myself. Well, after I assume the doctors will want to look me over eventually. Nobody's shown up yet, but... From what I know about the hospital staff and everything, I think they probably see we're having a moment. And they know that you're safe and stuff, so... They do know you're awake because I called for food for you. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm still cloudy from the coma, I guess. No one said comas are easy. But sometimes comas can be a beautiful thing. Like, you're about to walk out into a different world. Ooh, here it is. Look at it. Look at this feast. Oh yummy. Oh, my God. This is hospital food? Oh, my God. It's Chef
1: Emerald And Gordon Ramsay both made me a meal at this hospital?
0: A lot of celebrity chefs after the end of celebrity found that their greatest calling was helping the ill.
1: That oh, makes sense, yeah. Mm. Mmm. Very good, very good.
0: This is delicious, I hope to get sick soon <laughs> to come back, thank you. Oh, I'm gonna put on some beautiful music now, which is more varied and vibrant subgenre of human activity than ever. I gotta say, oh, futuristic
1: music that no one of my generation could have imagined.
0: You know, there's this, this sort of like weird old idea that under an egalitarian system, art would somehow suffer because like people aren't suffering enough or something but something that we actually knew even from research under capitalism for like a long long time is that uh, suffering has literally fucking nothing to do with creativity so advocating for suffering basically is what they were doing but hey that's that's how people made their living back then right advocate for suffering weird now
1: yeah glad that's over So we have this vision for a confederated, directly democratic, networked, global, mutualistic, beautiful future utopian society. And we have the current world where we're at now, which isn't like that at all. At least there's a few pockets that are a little bit like that, that are really cool, but mostly isn't like that. And then we have the question, well, what are some of the first steps?
4: That's always the big, <laughs> my day, used to call it the $64,000 question.
8: And I don't think there's any single route into this transformation, because the crisis that we're in the midst of is so great. And there are so many levels that need to be changed, that there are many different ways that people can be effective in this larger process of change. First, through oppositional movements, the experience that many of us have had. We have to be able to say, no, you can't build that pipeline, you can't drill that well. You can't continue to kill black kids in the street. You can't keep immigrants from our borders. All of those things are vitally necessary, but they're not sufficient. So at the same time, and I would emphasize it is at the same time, it's not either or. We need to create alternatives. and The alternatives have to embody and reflect those basic principles that I'm talking about. We have to be consistent and coherent.
2: We want to form cadres of people who share a core set of values and principles and want to realize them by building direct democracy where they
4: live. So people need to create municipal councils, citizens' assemblies in their cities, in their towns, in their villages, and create charters or constitutions that guide their assemblies.
8: And underlying all of this, of course, is a process of education.
4: There's this dance between taking action to organize, to put these beliefs into practice, and also the educational piece, coming together to create small study groups where people can become revolutionaries who would start to understand the necessary and sufficient conditions for creating a direct democracy. And then we start to put it into practice. They have to go hand in hand.
8: We need to educate ourselves. And we do that not just through classrooms and reading books, but also through participating in movements that are an expression of our beliefs, creating neighborhood assemblies, creating town meetings, which serve as an example of the kind of society we want to create. And as a training ground for that society, revitalizing town meetings where they exist. Here in Vermont, we still have town meeting government, but the purview has been gradually diminished and we need to expand that. And the politics also has a strategic element that suggests through the creation of these directly democratic, decentralized entities, we can begin to create a counter power to the centralized state and begin ultimately to contest with the state for power and replace the state with a true democracy.
3: I mean, I think there's two answers to the question of what is the social ecological vision of revolution. One was doing this through extra parliamentary assemblies that then become a locus of popular decision making, legitimacy that becomes kind of the seed of a dual power scenario between more authentic forms of direct democracy in tension with and eventual conflict with the state and with capitalism and build this new society in the shell of the old until we overthrow that old society. That was one route. The other route was entering into existing forms, whether that's the city council, whether that's the community board and taking them over, but not with the idea of just, you know, wielding power as politicians but with an eye towards turning them into popular assemblies to devolving power back down directly to the population over time he increasingly favored the second route of running candidates within existing state forms primarily i think because first of all that institutional infrastructure already exists it already has a certain amount of legitimacy you're not starting from square one personally i'm a little bit more agnostic on how and where we build dual power because The state and society as they exist are molded to upholding the status quo in a certain way and it's very difficult to wield them in a way that where they can be allowed to challenge that power which is why we need mass movements outside of the state to create pressure to change consciousness to organize direct actions to stop things from happening so
8: oppositional movements creating alternatives prefigurative movements prefigurative in the sense that it reflects these principles creating these alternative political forms that we've been discussing. Once again, not either or. All of these things need to happen simultaneously. And every individual needs to figure out how they can work most effectively. Some people it may be organizing a demonstration or participating in direct action, and that's great. But other people may be more effective forming a food co-op or some other form of mutual aid, and others, of course, may be keen to organize these neighborhood assemblies and town meetings and to work on that.
1: So there's all these questions. Should we be working to form independent democratic councils? Do we try to infiltrate local governments that already exist, or do we try to build separate democratic institutions? that we then network with each other to contest with the state, or eventually make the current state irrelevant by replacing it through building a new thing. How can we imagine a trajectory from here to there? And the thing I like about social ecology is that it takes all of these questions that can be framed as either or, and it answers, yes, we should do these things. We should do all of these things where possible and where appropriate, based on analysis of the specific local and temporal contingent circumstances of your situation. If there's something that's like worthwhile that you can get done by infiltrating, working within local municipal governments that already exist, it's a wonderful thing to do. If you can build a local council in your area that is separate from that and communicate with other such councils in regional and national and global ways, that's also a wonderful thing to do. Building it into something that can either replace or contend with the current structures, all good things.
0: No, and there's lots of arguments on the left broadly around these questions of like, how do we interact with power? How do we get the funding that we need in order to do work? Should we cast ballots or not? Should we contest our own candidates? All these sort of important, deep questions about how do we deal with actually existing power. I don't want to claim to have the definitive answer to such a complex and enormous question that's often reduced to bumper stickers. This is how I understand it, is that no matter what our stances are on electoral politics broadly and how we interact with these power structures, what we will or won't take from them, whether or not we're willing to try to liberate funds by lobbying the government and et cetera, as an independent, non-electoral organization, no matter what we want to do within politics. We need to have an organization that isn't bound and limited by the electoral system to organize it. Political parties, by their very nature, are about electing candidates to serve in parliaments, serve in governments, or serve in opposition political organizations which are political parties like that trying to seek to take office, there's certain patterns within that that are related to things like zero-sum competition for seats and the pragmatism of office and who are your enemies and who are your allies, who are you voting for, who do you endorse for president. Like, There's all these weird social dynamics that are very of the electoral hierarchical turning voters into consumers and candidates into products world. If we made a political party that's trying to field candidates as the basis of our radical orientation, or if we made interacting with something like the Democrats or the liberals in Canada or whatever, interacting with these political parties as the basis of our politics, we're missing the opportunity to really develop our own politics outside of these systems. And Even if we do wanna interact with these systems, any way that we can feasibly interact with these systems is empowered by building independent organizations outside. Building an organization that's not a political party, that has mass membership, that has democratic practices in it where people feel that they're part of something, that's a much better position to be in if you want to talk about extracting concessions from politicians and stuff like that. So I think even though there's some disagreement on specifics of elections within social ecology, there is an agreement that first and foremost, the non-electoral organizational forms will benefit whatever strategy you take down the road and are sort of the first principles is building community, building education, building direct democracy, however you can. That's like the starting point.
1: Yeah, I love that the starting point is to start building the thing we want. You know, like (laughs) we want to have local democracy where our voice matters. So start trying to create local democracies in which your voice matters. To contrast an
0: international non-democracy where my voice doesn't matter. That's going to be the way to build local democracy where my voice matters. Instead of having like an ideological procrastination outlook, it's like, okay, let's start building spaces that are reflective of the spaces we want the world to have. Yeah. Sounds basic, but in anarchist theory, that's called prefiguration, and it's controversial to some leftists for some reason. It's like if you want there to be something, you do it. It's like a nature of the world, you know? Like if you want there to be a painting of a certain type, you don't capture a painter, point a gun at him, and make him do it for you. It's like you learn to paint. You get other people to learn to paint with you, and you paint together. And if someone... You
1: paint something else first, and then... When everyone hates that painting, someone in a reaction will create the painting that you want. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just being silly.
0: So through this process of doing what we want people to do and creating the situations that we claim to want to create, just doing it.
1: It's the same thing that Eleanor was talking about, the acorn analogy, prefiguration, that in order to grow what we want to grow politically, the smallest forms of our movements must match the forms of the institutions that we want to build.
0: It's hard. There's things that come up in that process that are not easy, that are challenging, that we have to overcome those challenges as they arise together. It's not like this easy one and done sort of thunderbolt, everything's going to be perfect. It's a long process of experimentation, experimentation with the science of the relationships between people and the relationships between people in the world. That's the revolutionary process that's going to get us where we need to go. That's a powerfully different type of revolution than we've seen before. It's not just the shift of power from one small group to another. It's the process of developing and distributing the tools for everyone to empower themselves in relation to each other in a fair way.
2: Another key feature of that acorn analogy, which comes from Hegel is how all acorn trees are fundamentally similar and yet are different. No two oak trees are the same throughout all of history. This goes for humans and virtually all other organisms. If we apply that to political organizing, we are both holding a core set of ideas and principles and having an openness and acceptance for growth.
5: I don't want to limit ourselves to just the particular ideas that happen to get developed in this one historical context, one particular part of the world. I think on a global perspective, that's simply too narrow. Any philosophy
7: that claims to have all the
5: answers is, in
7: my opinion, not legitimate
5: because there's a whole lot of different kinds of human communities in the world, even just in the world today. But if you think of it in historical terms, there have been all sorts of different human communities facing different sets of challenges, facing different expectations, facing different historical possibilities.
4: Social ecology promotes always a unity in diversity and a healthy, robust, and creative dynamic between the categories of the general and the particular. The beauty, politically speaking, is that each local municipality, each confederation, would share a common constitution that shares the same general set of principles. But each local community and each confederation would bring its own particular geography, its own ecology, its own cultural history, ethnic history, its relationship to its own political history, They bring all that to bear on the political policies that they make that retain the general core principles that would be shared by every member of that community, but also by every member of the Confederation. And
5: I'm always a little bit leery about making general pronouncements about humans should do this or humans ought to do that. What I favor instead is trying to work toward framework that makes it possible for as many people as can to get involved in some of those discussions, to make those discussions as informed as they can be, to make them as critical as they can be, and to make them as hopeful as they can be.
2: In social ecology, we propose that those principles are non-hierarchy, fairness in labor and economic activities.
4: Direct democracy, moral economy, technology, ecology, social justice.
2: A political movement that is truly revolutionary should be able to all sign onto those principles, yet approach them in different ways, select different priorities.
4: So there's, again, a stance between the particular and
2: the general.
8: And there will be a great deal of differentiation, but unity in terms of the underlying ethics.
5: And if we can do both of those things, if we can simultaneously stay true to the ideas from this one tradition that we think really have extraordinary potential, and at the same time put those ideas in dialogue with the amazing diversity, the amazing variety of radical traditions that can be found in different cultures around the world, and for that matter, that can be found in different historical periods. If we can do both of those things, then I like to think that we are on the right track. So it's a living, evolving
7: philosophy. It isn't something ossified by Bookshin and handed down on stone tablets. So it's up to those who are inspired by Bookshin, as well as who had some critical analysis of what he had to say to build on it.
1: No one person or group of people or whatever is gonna come up with the perfect set of ideas that will last forever social ecology, if we want it to be something that's vibrant and alive and on a developmental trajectory of increasing fullness and diversity and etc., the way that that's going to happen is if people take it and make it work for them wherever and whenever they are. You can't help but do that in a sense because you aren't anywhere else than where you are. Like, Sean and I talking about politics and imagining a better political future and talking about what the first steps of that might be is going to be bounded by the fact that we are alive right now in these years, that we're in North America. Like this is our context and our political thought is going to be of that context and may not be as applicable in a future time at a different location.
0: An interesting thing, too, just about Bookchin on a personal level is he wasn't trying to proliferate social ecology by proliferating social ecology. He was trying to proliferate the politics of the left, the historic left, and articulate what the politics of the left are into a coherent system, trying to adapt the anarchist communist tradition for the latter half of the 20th century in America. And there's this passage in post-scarcity anarchism when he's responding to critics of his essay, Listen Marxist, which is a critique of Marxist movements at the time. Basically, someone accuses him of being American-centric, which he flips on its head and says, if you talk to the people of the world and ask them if they want a revolution in America, they're gonna say yes. And they're not in a position to do revolution in America. We are, we live here. This is a paraphrase. This is what I took from it. It's been a while since I read it. But the basic idea was... I'm not going to make any apologies about trying to create a revolution in America because revolution in America would help everyone because America is uniquely powerful, uniquely bad in all these different ways. And that idea stuck with me about like how we can make our politics rooted where we are in a conscious way and not an embarrassed way. Oh, goodness, I'm sorry I was born in such and such city by such and such parents. No, the exact context is where we should be looking to organize. We can think of what your role is, your places in the world, according to everything else. And that's a leverage point, that understanding, acknowledging it, not shirking away from it. And if you need to, like Kropotkin, shedding it, saying, I don't want to be a prince, saying, I don't want, like, if you're in an unjust position, shedding that position to the highest degree you can adapting social ecological politics and ethics to the context that we're in and the historical context of the political systems, the land that we're living on, to trace the legacy of domination and the legacy of freedom in relation to our place and our history as a way of understanding ourselves better and helping to articulate the vision of society that we want to make while connecting with people where they're at. And, you know, as we can observe
1: in nature... Diversity increases resilience. Having the flexibility to adapt these ideas to the local environment is going to increase the hardiness overall of the crop of social ecologies that we can plant around the world. Like if people who think that this conversation is the right one to be having right now and is the conversation that's gonna help bring us towards a better society in the future, who live all around the world, start planting little seeds around them of local social ecologies, local ideas in this sphere. The more of that that happens, the more of those seeds are gonna be able to sprout.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like the more heirloom varieties of leftism that we have floating around. It increases the chance that if certain types of disaster strikes, we're going to be able to have the right ideological and philosophical tools to grapple with that situation. And I think a really beautiful, wonderful, and detailed example of that is what's happened with the Democratic Federation in northern Syria, with Kurdish Marxist leader Abdullah Ocalan's embrace of social ecology, Ocalan decided to write theory that was specific to the Middle East and the Kurdish context and create institutions that were radically directly democratic, pulling on his knowledge of the region and of Kurdish history to make a version of social ecology that starts by meeting people where they're at and then works through dialogue and support to bring them to the directly democratic ecological ethical conclusion. I think we can also interpret some of Bookchin's choices as a theorist working out of America during the time period that he did. Like He's been criticized for his emphasis on ancient Greece as a place where there were liberatory aspects and focusing on that. But engaging with the classics is sort of part of American culture and part of creating a rigorous intellectual pedigree for which he can push forward in the context of American philosophical history. It makes sense in that context. And reading Ochelon helped illuminate that aspect of Bookchin for me.
4: So I've been teaching social ecology for at least 35 years. And for most of that time, people would come, whether I'm giving a lecture or teaching a class, people ask a very legitimate question, which is, well, has this ever been tried anywhere out in the world? Have these ideas been put into practice really? And around 2009, we start hearing there's this incredible group of people, Kurds, in Syria, putting these ideas into practice, and that the seminal thinker that they're very much inspired by is a man who's been in prison on an island off Turkey who found Bookshin's works and read them starting in 1999, literally living in a prison, and God even knows how he gets any of the books he reads, and started to look at social ecology and think, huh, Could I apply some of what I see here to help the Kurds, who before that were trying to figure out how to create an independent Kurdish state? And he pivoted from a Marxist-Leninist style of organizing, and he shifted from that outlook. I mean, it's literally mind-blowing what he's been able to freaking do, that he was able to read this stuff and decide, I'm gonna create a whole new understanding of the democratic tradition for the Middle East. Well, he's in a little island in a prison with access to very limited literature. It's amazing. And as the years move onward, they're refining these ideas and applying these ideas literally while they are fighting in a civil war and fighting off ISIS. The whole things blows my mind.
3: The most utopian social theorist, Marxism isn't utopian enough, and yet here it's being carried out in a very dystopian war zone. That's the first thing. But the second thing is another criticism of the kind of politics of direct democracy is, well, that's all well and good, but what does this mean in a world of ethnic and racial differentiation, et cetera? And here we have some very interesting on-the-ground experiences with popular assembly democracy, finding balance in very diverse local communities between Arabs, Kurds, Assyrians, Yazidis, et cetera, and also with 50% female participation.
4: People are literally putting these ideas into practice under the most difficult circumstances, with such resilience, with such courage, and they're doing it while also fighting patriarchy in the Middle East. People who live in the U.S. think that the United States is a bastion of feminism. We've never had a feminist movement within a sort of a generalist movement in the United States that resembles what women of Rojava have been able to create in the democratic confederalist movement.
3: So here in this part of the world, the Middle East, that, you know, the Western gaze tends to see as so backwards and regressive, you have far more diverse ethnic and gender representation than you see practically anywhere else in the world. And it's working, knitting together a more diverse and solidarity society, then that's, that's profoundly hopeful.
4: While they're trying to defeat ISIS and literally build the material basis of their society, they were all taking classes that they created for each other as part and central to becoming citizens of their new and good society. They didn't have existing political institutions to occupy. They created their own, and people could do that in the United States as well. You know, if you look at the Spanish anarchists, they put education at the center of their revolutionary project.
2: One link that comes to mind is the Zapatista movement. The Zapatistas staged their uprising in Mexico in 1994. If you were born in 1994, you're in your mid-20s by now. And there are really beautiful accounts of the Zapatista-controlled areas today of young people who have been brought up in this system and are so much better at it than the preceding generation. You're also starting to see this in Rojava as well. Young people who grew up during this revolution are more skilled than their parents at participating in a direct democracy.
4: Before Rojava, I couldn't really say I'd seen anybody try to put these political ideals into practice, but there they are. Yet another moment that proves what humanity can do. And I'm not saying what they're doing, everything was perfect, and every, I don't want to romanticize, but the intention and the reasoning behind what they're trying to do in creating an egalitarian gender equality and ecology and direct democracy.
3: does draw very much on Bookchin's project, articulated into the cultural context by Ojalan. I think that's a very beautiful testament to internationalism in terms of the kinds of solidarities we're seeing, people supporting that revolution, but also just in the terms of the free flow of ideas across cultural boundaries. We have movements on the ground, you know, really borrowing liberally from each other. I find that really exciting.
4: And I wish I could kind of get Murray back for a day or an hour and just explain to him what's been going on over there. You know, I'm very dear friends with Debbie Bookshin and we talk about Rojava a lot and it just... Gives us hope that this set of ideas that we've been trying to promote really do make sense. You know, I feel like I've been able to sort of stand up straighter as a social ecologist to see these ideas be put into practice in a way that I could never even dream of doing in the United States, except now I can dream of it because I've seen them do it.
1: Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by Bringing Apo Home for the Holidays Apo? Who's that? Apo is Kurdish for uncle, and it's an affectionate term to refer to imprisoned dissident and social ecologist Abdullah Ojalan. Imagine, if you will, your whole extended family in any year other than 2020 pandemic year sitting around the holiday
0: table Uh, Sorry, which way were the carrots going Just over here yeah, thank you. Does anyone mind if I take double gravy? Oh, the vegan gravy is that one. You know, I'm not a vegan, but I am trying to decrease the amount of meat I eat. Aren't we all here? Stacy, Jeffy, Grandma... Whitney, Alan. J- open the... Who, who is it? Come in! Is that... It's Apo! A prison dissonant. Abdullah Oshalan. have you been freed from your Turkish island prison? Uh, who brought Uncle home for the holidays? Hey, guys, do you think we got room at the table to accept Apo this holiday season? Of course, yeah. We'll accept except, yeah, except Apo. 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 Like your manifesto. Now, Uncle hasn't actually been freed from his Turkish Island prison, but we can still accept him into our home for the holidays. Instead of arguing about elections or candidates or movies or what musicians did, argue about the unjust life sentence that Apo is serving in a Turkish Island prison under charges of treason and separatism, forcing him to release his writings by entering it as testimony in court.
1: David Graeber accepted Apo. He said that Apple continually adapted his ideas around pragmatic considerations and the need to rally real people to real action without ever sacrificing theoretical sophistication. It's hard to find another theorist of the past 50 years who has taken philosophical and social scientific ideas and adapted them in such a way as to inspire millions of people to try and treat one another differently. That's what David Graeber said about him.
0: And that's why we're here today to say everybody should bring uncle home for the holidays. Talk about him and his imprisonment and his philosophy with your friends and family. You, I mean like the person listening, like actually you,
1: this holiday. Within reason, stay safe out there everyone.
0: Next holiday, any holiday is good. Ocalan's a social ecologist political prisoner that needs to be freed from the Turkish state. And his political philosophy and the history of his life is really fascinating and interesting. There's a lot of entry points for talking about it. There's complex political and ethical questions. And there's something about uncle for everyone to love. Let's bring him home for the holidays. So,
1: for example, if you're talking to your libertarian dad, you might bring up Ocalan believes that all people have a right to self-determination outside of the state. And the way to do this was through democratic efforts of a civil society together.
0: Maybe your little sister or cousin's interested in critiques of patriarchy, social justice. Ocalan's political theory is built on direct democracy, ecology, and feminism. You can maybe start a conversation about how capitalism and the nation state represent male dominance in a more institutionalized form. It's not a bad time to mention the YPJ, the women's militias in Kurdistan that were crucial in fighting ISIS, who are patriarchal extremists.
1: If your older brother is a tech who loves Elon Musk, you can say Ojalon believes that the rich variety of institutions and practices that the democratic system offers is built on social and scientific technological development.
0: Maybe you've got a historian cousin or aunt or second cousin, aunt's fiance, whatever. You can talk to them about the Sykes-Picot Agreement when France and England split up the Middle East into countries without the consent of the actual communities there, which split what's been called Kurdistan into four segments with pieces in Iran, Syria, Iraq, and Turkey, and how that historic experience relates to the development within Ocalan's perspective on directly democratic, non-state bodies confederating in the shell of nation states rather than overthrowing them and creating a new nation state. How that sort of theory of democratic confederalism bloomed in that context.
1: Let's say that your grandpa is a veteran. You could point out Apo knows what it's like. He's fought for freedom, for democracy. He's been in the trenches, so to speak, of the military struggle for freedom.
0: Maybe you've got a sort of a conservative uncle, maybe he's into conspiracy theories. There's a lot for him to dig his teeth into here around the imprisonment of Abdullah O'Shalan. They imprisoned him in solitary confinement for seven years on an island prison where he was the only prisoner. It's sort of bizarre. Do some digging on that. Maybe he's a bit racist, maybe not even necessarily like capital R racist. You can quote Ocelon. Ocelon said that diversity is the meaning of life. Engage philosophically about why diversity is a good thing. A variety of perspectives and experiences can be more than the sum of its parts.
1: Starting a conversation with your mother, you could mention that Ocelon brings up that the first recorded written word for freedom, amargi, literally translated means return to mother. There's so many dense, interesting philosophical implications there to talk about with your mom.
0: If you got a kid at the holiday table, you know, who wants to be an astronaut or something that people don't believe that they can do, O'Chalon said, the first thing capitalism does is crush the dreams of children. And that might be an interesting thing to talk to that kid about.
1: Maybe your grandma loves to garden, but there's just so many rich metaphors that you can use to link gardening to the democratic process. And, you know, even Apo himself said that democracy is almost a garden of language and culture. He really understood that an ecological way of thinking is kind of necessary in a lot of areas of life. And the results speak for themselves. People who've been trying these out, everyone they know is starting to accept uncle into their home.
0: The amount of awareness of Abdullah Oshelon, the amount of Apo accepting going on, the amount of critical engagement with his work and theory for building a democratic civilization has been rapidly increasing from these holiday conversations.
1: This past Thanksgiving, we were doing this video hangout because of the pandemic, and I was just reading these Apo quotes the whole time. By the end of it, three of my family members had accepted Apo.
0: We watched a short YouTube video about him at my Thanksgiving. My grandma was pretty into it especially. Surprisingly. But I'd say overall they all accepted it. I accept Apple. I accept Apple. Yeah, yeah, I, I accept, apo accept, apo. accept apo. that My uncle, apo my sister. You accept as we it. accept his know he exists and critically engage with them This just then breaking news the apo acceptance rate is nearing 100%. So many people brought Uncle home for the holidays that now the talk of the town is building a directly democratic civilization. More people than ever are aware of Abdullah Ojalon and what he stands for, and more and more people on the left are integrating his insights into their analysis. If that isn't a holiday season gift, I don't know what is.
8: So, to sum up, we need to do all of that, and for me that is a utopian program and recognize that along the way, we will achieve perhaps small steps. But a utopian perspective is important because it at least allows us to orient ourselves, to say this is our vision, and then we can assess our small steps and see if they're taking us in the right direction or if they're taking us somewhere else. And in that sense, I think social ecology, though we are utopian in our aspirations, we're very pragmatic the way that we approach the building of utopia.
5: I think that's one of the real achievements of social ecology. In Bookchin's work, especially in Dan Chortokoff's work, I think Dan in particular has done an outstanding job of developing that notion of a utopianism that is useful, that is meaningful, of incorporating a utopian outlook into our realistic assessment of the dire state of the world.
4: Society around us is very cynical, and we'll say to you, well, this isn't practical. Have you ever seen this happen before, Social ecology asserts that what you see around you, just because it's what surrounds you, doesn't mean it has to be that way. We can have ideals that have not been put into practice yet, but they can be just as real as the world spinning around us.
5: If we restrict our vision to merely the things we see around us now, And if we then fool ourselves into thinking our possible forms of society must therefore be limited to some slight variation on whatever exists right now, that is a fundamental mistake.
8: There's also the aspect of utopia that can be extremely oppressive. Thomas More, in his utopia, all of the cities are as alike as peas in a pod. And he thought that was a great thing because then you could never get lost. Well, that would be horrible. As far as I'm concerned, there's the old adage, one person's utopia is another person's hell. So there are these idiosyncratic expressions of utopia that reflect the likes and dislikes of individuals. On the other hand, there are utopian social movements, which are an expression of a collective longing, a collective yearning for a qualitatively different kind of world, a world that transcends the given. And they usually are based in an understanding of some real existing potentiality, some new development, either social development or technological development, which holds the potential for that kind of transformative social process, transforming what is into what should be and what could be, very importantly, could be peace. Because if we are simply pursuing fantasies, then obviously we'll get nowhere. But if we ground our utopian vision in real existing potentials, we can transform. world.
5: I don't see those two things, utopianism and realism, as fundamentally incompatible. I see them as being potentially complementary. I see them as having a potentially fruitful mutual interaction. In other words, a social ecology approach to utopianism says, look, the world right now is screwed up. In a thousand different ways and we have a lot of different resources that we can draw on for try to figure out potential paths to get our communities and our societies and eventually our planet out of the dire straits that it currently finds itself in one of those many different resources that we have available to us are the traditions of utopian thought that have imagined possible worlds that do not yet exist but could
8: I think it's vital that we not be afraid to express our highest aspirations, not just the lowest common denominator, and that that will, in fact, serve as a point of inspiration for people, not as a turn off.
4: Our activism and our actions, they have to come from that place that has hope for the future, optimism for the future, to escape the kind of narrow-minded, cynical kind of approach to politics that a lot of leftists get trapped in. And so I think at the end, I see social ecology as one of the last leftist, idealist philosophies out there. And I think it's just so, so important that we hold on to that.
1: I've mentioned to you, Sean, a few times that part of doing this has been a process for me of realizing how much I already was a social ecologist. Like, there were things that I believed that I didn't realize were already so embedded into social ecology, just because I haven't read a lot of it and absorbed it secondhand. One of them that struck me so hard was the way that people in the social ecological sphere talk about utopia. It's just weird. It's just a trip hearing these people who are like...
0: People who have experience with movement politics and historical stuff, who came to the same conclusion that we did but in a way more information dense context and elaborated on it quite a bit. When we started
1: the podcast, I was into these kinds of ideas, but was more of the, oh, don't call it utopian. It's rational. These are good ideas. It's not a utopia. And Sean came in and was like, you know, why do people talk about world peace as if it's something silly that we could never, like, don't we want world peace? Let's go for world peace. And one of our first episodes was called World Peace. And like that attitude of embracing the thing that is used as a term of derision to describe the best society was in the fabric of the show from the start.
0: As a teenager, I had this idea of politics as this extremely boring technical place where there was no distinctions. It was all just this weird, corrupt, embarrassing, ineffective system that I'd be a happier person to never think about. I really strongly believe that as a teenager. But when I encountered some very radical political ideas around things that I had been experiencing in my life, which was I'd been pirating movies and music on the Internet because I wanted to listen to it, I had a desire to listen to it. I encountered people making a radical, anarchistic, political argument that the Internet should be set free and that there's nothing wrong with sharing music and there's nothing wrong with sharing culture with each other. And that utopian perspective was what moved me from someone who had thought about politics a number of times into a political activist for 10 years. So I know that the utopian inspiration is part of this process from experience, And I remember even thinking too, explicitly, like when quite young, being like, why don't we try for utopia? Like you're saying, like, why don't we try for world peace? Why is the word for the thing that we want also the word for the thing that's impossible? That seems like it's a corrupt use of language. It seems like it's a use of language that's trying to lead us to a certain conclusion. So it just... It never clicked for me, even as a really cynical, young, non-activist person, that it would be impossible. And like, that is the spark of the actual engagement. Like the first real political engagement I did was around copyright abolition, which anyone will tell you is a utopian idea. <laughs> Bookchin
1: believes that the gap between what is and what should be is something that we need to be aware of in order to move forward. And in order to do that, you need a vision of what should be. And this is like such an essential point that even people who claim to be anti-utopians have to accept it, sometimes in ways that like really almost exactly mirror this argument. For example, Jordan Peterson, noted anti-utopian, believes that visions of utopia lead to death squads. At the same time as that, in his book Maps of Meaning, every single one of those weird dragon diagrams that you might have seen floating around the internet mean a bunch of weird shit. But the one major true thing that they do mean is there's a gap between where you are now and where you want to be that he sometimes describes as imagining heaven on earth, the best possible world you can imagine, and then taking steps in that direction from where you are. We'd probably have a lot of disagreements about what heaven would look like. But that structure, even people who claim to be anti-utopian have to accept it. It's just that fundamental. It's that basic. It's how changing society works.
0: No, I think the crudest and worst type of anti-utopianism that you would see mostly from right-wingers, but not always, but mostly, is basically training people to be less hopeful, training people to have less tools The worst type of anti-utopianism is creating these social limits on dialogue and imagination, which are akin to, like, crushing the dreams of children. And I can imagine a very serious person being like, oh, yes, you have to crush the dreams of children. An adult having childish dreams? I
1: think think Jordan Peterson says that or something (laughs) like that.
0: Almost definitely. And Ochelon says the first thing that capitalism does to its subjects is crush the dreams of children. True. <laughs> but the part of us that dreams like that is what motivates us to take action in the world. And restricting artificially the realm of what we can envision is the ideological goal of capitalist repression. You know, there's the quote attributed to Frederick Jameson and stuff we quoted, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. That's by design, because if you can't imagine the end of capitalism, you're not going to have any hope. And if you don't have any hope, you're not going to be able to do shit. You're not going to be able to get off the couch and start talking to your neighbors. You're not going to be able to like unplug from the doom scrolling and do a little bit of research about the political history of your area. So you've got a context to connect with old timers and bring them into an ecological and democratic understanding. And I'm not saying that any of this is like easier. It's the same amount of work either way, but you can't do anything without hope. That just goes so deep into human psychology, but we have to actually apply that wisdom to our politics. And I think that's what social ecological theorists challenge us to do.
1: And I think to cap it all off, we'll have all seven of our guests speaking together one last time to just really nail the point home. What is it? What's the beautiful future we wanna build? What's the inspiring vision here? We even got some inspiring piano music playing.
6: The hope for Endgame is a genuinely ecological society.
8: A non-hierarchical society, a society that celebrates unity and diversity, that moves towards ever greater complexity, diversity, freedom, that allow for spontaneity, and is homeostatic as well, achieving a steady state, state of balance.
6: That engages with the natural world, with relationships of participation.
4: That actually build on the biological riches around us rather than depleting it
2: a revolution both in human society and natural evolution as a part of the same phenomena. So that human beings are in harmony with each other and that we're living in harmony with the natural world.
8: Ultimately, that's social ecology's goal. The reharmonization of first nature and second nature. The reharmonization of people and the rest of the planet.
7: To view the world both critically and creatively to think about what's possible and what could be, as well as an ethical framework for what What
8: should should be. be. Ethics derived from our understanding of first nature itself.
2: Advancing a political program built on principles of reciprocity, sharing power, equality,
3: mutualism, complementarity. complementarity between people with disabilities, sexes
8: and
2: genders,
3: the
8: universality of our humanity,
2: human fraternity and sorority and cooperation,
3: a rational anti capitalist ecological politics committed to uprooting racial domination, gender domination, age domination, class domination, environmental domination.
2: And all of the other social justice principles we are constantly fighting for.
3: A politics that reflects those principles. It's a self-managed, radically democratic society where we make collective decisions on a human scale together.
4: People meeting in a face-to-face way, or maybe through Zoom, virtually.
3: Where there is a broader assembly-based framework where everybody
5: gets to have a say
2: in equal measure to how those projects affect
5: us. In a participatory and active and grassroots fashion.
4: In which people who are citizens get to shape the policies around what, what we, we produce.
3: produce. How we produce it and how we distribute it in the political realm, not according to markets. Where we
4: bring back the notion of the irreducible minimum and create an economy.
3: A
8: mutualistic, a communist economic-based
4: where everybody's needs are met and then some because we are valuable we're all
2: inherently equally valuable
8: in order to do that we need
4: an uncompromising commitment to the belief that humans can be better that we can
8: achieve a human society which is
4: horizontal radically
8: radical, democratic
2: creative
3: peaceful cooperative, cooperative decentralized federalist
2: feminist, feminist anti-racist
3: anti-capitalist queer
4: positive diverse, diverse free Ecological.
3: Ecological. ecological.
2: ecological. Social, social ecology, ecology describes the potential for a
7: more
6: ecological approach to social organization that values relationships among people and between people and various elements of non human nature through a fundamentally ethical and cooperative lens.
7: So that is, to me, the essence of it in contrast to being another faction of a you know, left political turf battle, <laughs> which I frankly find rather tiresome.
1: And now we go to two old friends meeting on a train. Oh, excuse me. I'm just, uh, thank you. It's Mortimer. Hey. hey, Lewis, buddy. there you are. I was wondering. Oh, uh, you think I'm gonna miss our regular train ride?
0: Yeah, ever since that chance encounter figuring out, we usually take trains on Thursdays and we can try to sync this up and have yeah. a train buddy. Yeah,
1: I used to always take the 345 and it's like why not take the three thirty? I know why I'm covered in dirt. I was just in my garden. Why are you all covered in dirt?
0: I don't want to talk about it. I've been getting my hands dirty too. We had a General Assembly today as a mass democratic organization. Oh, Sometimes yeah, help right facilitate yeah. political stuff. Just a municipal framework for anarchist counterpower, mass organization. I've told you this stuff before. But yeah, today was tough because, I mean, when we say a mass organization, we mean a mass organization. So you have people showing up who come from different places and there was some conflict today. That's just, I just want to not think about it. So talking about gardening... That sounds perfect. There's
1: something special about setting aside some space where you can grow food for yourself and have a hyper-local abundance in your backyard. It's really cool to like grow your own food and like nourish yourself. Philosophically, I find that really, really neat. It's powerful, and something about working with the plants Looking at what can grow in, say, the climate of your city, even what the conditions of your yard are. Is it rocky? Is it sandy? There's all kinds of ways that you can interact to make the garden more fruitful.
0: I really vibe with that. It's like a garden is an extension of a human being, a gardener mixed into nature with the knowledge that's been passed to that gardener from past gardening techniques and like experiments, right? Yeah. That's really a trip. like. It's a mixing of not only an individual gardener but humanity's gardening knowledge as a whole with a limited space of nature
1: yeah it's not that we are born with the knowledge of how to garden it's that we have engaged in this process of looking at wild nature and seeing what's going on there and saying how can we replicate parts of that in the more contained space of our garden And it's this process of trying things out and seeing what works and discarding what doesn't work so good and amplifying what works better and sharing that knowledge with each other that allows people to keep growing our knowledge of how to grow food better and how to have this relationship between ourselves and these bits of remixed nature that we're using to nourish ourselves. It's almost like in politics, like, I assume you've got to kind of do the same thing, right? Like, I don't know a lot about it, but there's a lot of theories out there on how to do it. And then you got to, like, try it out and see what works. Right? Yeah, to- I
0: mean, 100%. To
1: grow a nourishing political environment.
0: There's literally no other options. The shape of human interventions into the world, you know? <laughs> and yeah, actually, I've got to say, a garden, it nourishes the gardener. But this discussion is nourishing my sense of the interconnections between gardening and politics. I was thinking already the knowledge of how to garden was sort of like compressed human innovation experimentalist labor in the past being passed down as wisdom. But thinking of these like common garden plants, they themselves were shaped through the selective breeding processes of people. So even the seed of the cabbage contains historical labor by our ancestors to produce something that grows to meet our needs even heirloom seeds heirloom seeds are like the wildest version of garden seeds that are available and they are themselves domesticated varieties that are passed down it really blows my mind to think about how much interface human beings and proto humans interacted with nature on these fundamental ways and changed the shape and trajectory of the world and not purely in ways that were bad, but also in ways that were beautiful and differentiating ecologically sound ways.
1: That's part of the way gardening has to work. It's It's like when you get into gardening, you start learning things like certain plants grow better if you grow them near each other, because maybe one wards off insects that hurts the other one, or beans, for example, put nitrogen into soil, which is good for all kinds of other plants. It's good to grow beans with lots of things. There are pre-existing realities that we can observe to increase the yield, to make the thriving of nature that you've contained into
0: your yard fuller. That sort of concept of wholeness as it applies to the garden where like the earthworms help grow the tomatoes and because you planted it next to beets, you got a benefit. Like the richness of the soil and all this, The sort of environmental holistic wholeness of the garden I feel like really reminds me of like why I believe in participating in mass organizations. Like having these different groups of people and like so it's, it's a pain in the ass sometimes, especially just when people treat each other cruelly and stuff and it's not the first time it happened today at the meeting, but like still sucks. But there are ways to, you know, make sure all the plants are far enough apart that you're putting the right ones next to the right ones. Metaphorically here, I guess plants would be like political sub tendencies within mass organizations, giving them what they need in order to thrive on themselves and mutually complementary ways to eventually create a cornucopic outcome, which is nourishing, not just to the gardeners, but the community and the political world at large. And like me as a facilitator of this, as someone who's trying to make it work, I just need to remember, like, we don't have gardening information for direct democracy. We have to, like, figure it out and do the first experiments as we go. But our labor, too, as people who are doing the right thing and trying to find ways to make sure that everyone's voices matter in a structural way, our labor will be passed down, too, the same way that gardening information is passed down to you to make your garden flourish. So the reason I'm covered in dirt is because a guy threw dirt at me. Yeah, oh. He's getting punished from the organizing committee and stuff, but I feel... I just yelled, you have no epistemology. And it's not like a nice thing to say, but it is important. Maybe
1: you should have yelled, I'm not sure I understand your epistemology. Can you explain it better? It might have been a bit less confrontational. I
0: do feel like I said that before, sort of, in a way, but... Yeah, probably maybe
1: lots of people said that before.
0: Yeah. Feeling like you're not being listened to, man. It just, oh my God. It's really hard sometimes. Something they teach you when you start gardening is that
1: you can plant the seeds, but you can't force them to grow, right? Like, sometimes you just plant a seed and it doesn't grow. Maybe it's a bad seed or maybe the conditions weren't right. So, like, with this guy, you know, I don't want to call anyone a bad seed. That's a weird thing to say, but, like... The
0: garden has bad seeds in it, maybe, or... Maybe that guy's just not
1: in the right climate, you know? Like I think our political environment is probably decreasing the yield of a lot of people's internal flourishing, but just like for you, doing all this political work, it's good to remember that you know if you go out and plant a hundred seeds, some of them are going to grow. But if you get too focused on one of them, and why isn't this seed growing, and I wanted a plant here, and ooh, this was my project, I'm attached to this outcome, then it's a recipe for internal strife and. It's not going to help you be a better gardener.
0: People get so burned out, man. It's like they try to be the tomatoes and the cucumbers and the soil and the earthworms all themselves. Or people act like if you're very serious about growing tomatoes, you have to, like, stare at them more, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's not how growing tomatoes works. You plant the tomato seeds, you do the watering. It's small daily tasks, small repetitive tasks. It's not one big night where you stay up for 28 hours and grow all the tomatoes and then you did it. You know, it's a slow process that you can play a role in as a facilitator, as someone who's nourishing the tomato plants to provide the conditions that will help it to grow. And if your tomato plants are political outcomes, you can do your best to try and help political outcomes to flourish in the world, but ultimately, All you can do is that, is plant seeds and try to provide a good context for them. You can't make the plant grow. There's no button for you to push. You can control your actions, but you can't always control the final results that your actions are going to yield, you know? You can help, but you can't do it.
0: Yeah. You know what, I think part of the reason I lost my cool today is I'm like that first-round gardener, and on some level I think... If I point the gun at the tomato plant, it's going to grow faster if I watch it. I'm like, come on, grow now, sprout.
1: Yeah, if you frown at the tomato plant or like make it read your gardening theory or threaten it with weapons, it's yeah, none of that stuff works in the garden. Cuz that's not what makes living things grow together, you know? That's nourishment. That's planting seeds. That's looking to nature and seeing how thriving happens and trying to recreate it. That's how plants and animals and humans can grow together not by trying to force it in that way, you know?
0: Yeah, it's almost like because we're so early in the process of developing institutional structures that will define the other side of the abolition of capitalism, that as we experiment on these different organizational forms, horizontal, directly democratic forms and stuff, it's easy to be like this bold, naive, first-time gardener who's like, I want to grow big pumpkins, so I'm going to put 12 liters of water on the pumpkin seed to make sure that it really has enough. Yeah, if some water's good, more must be better. Pumpkins need water, so I've buried this seed in sand, and I've poured 12 gallons of water on it. And if it doesn't grow right, well, it must be the weather.
1: Or it must just be that you didn't plant 30 seeds and poured 900 gallons of water on it. You know, just
0: keep ramping it up. It's like, no, you can't plant the pumpkin in sand. Okay, I'm taking all the sand. I'm just going to put only seeds, only seeds, and then much less water, just a cup and a half. It's like watching anti-organizational anarchists argue with vanguardists.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I wouldn't wouldn't have got that before we started having these talks, but you're always telling me political things, and now it totally makes sense to me.
0: But yeah, gardens grow from understanding the climate, knowing the processes, determined from experimentation and selective breeding, how plants work together and how plants work with people. The same applies to mass political action, knowing where the politics is based, connecting the politics to the history of where you are and working to understand the spaces between people as the basis of organizing. It's a very, very similar process, but it's a process we've developed a lot less.
1: I think a lot of the political knowledge passed down through most of human history has become either lost or differently applicable. And I guess what I'm saying is that the soil of the current year and the current political conditions are very, very different than they've ever been at any time in history. Like, this is a unique ecosystem of politics because the material conditions of the world right now are so... Different than they've ever been before. And even like regionally, it's extremely different depending on which part of the world you're in. So it seems like there's a lot of work that has to be done to understand how to increase political yields in the current year, in the current situation with what we have.
0: Something I think about like, in what time of year do different types of politics bloom? In election seasons, there's a type of weather right there where politics is front and center. And I think there's a serious organizational question for us on, like, how do we make our flowers bloom in that weather? And then after an election day, when people are disappointed or people are seeing the results of the inadequacy of all the candidates, whoever ended up getting in, on what degree of nakedly evil they are and to whom, that's another type of context, like another type of weather or another type of soil in that metaphorical space where it might make different seeds bloom. And the sort of idea of one of the frontiers of politics is dropping seeds around on the off chance that the conditions are such that that idea can really bloom. It's like how neoliberalism became the ideology of capitalist society. It was a Mont society created a set of ideas, a seed, which they dropped out there as a solution in weight of a crisis. And then there's a political moment where that idea was able to shift to the mainstream. And it was like... The weather lined up where that seed was able to bloom and then become a dominant reproducing tree that took over the whole ecosystem, metaphorically speaking. Yeah, yeah. But that patience though, I think I really, when I'm participating in these directly democratic meetings, trying out ways of organizing ourselves accountably and ethically, and there's personality conflicts, you know, it's hard to know how to be a democratic person. You know, I'm still learning that and I've been doing this about as long as anybody. So the gardener's patience, I think, is something I need to bring into my revolutionary practice. Because it's true that we need to revolutionize the garden, revolutionize the ecosystem, you know, the big garden. We can't just let the weeds, the metaphorical weeds, keep flourishing. We can't just let the literal soil keep depleting. We have to alter that. But in terms of the political realm, I'm going to try to have the patience of a gardener. I'm going to try to plant seeds. I'm going to try to be nourishing in the ways that I know work. And I'm going to try to keep people away from each other that I know are going to waste both of their time and my time. That's the lesson I'm taking away from this conversation. I'm going to try to figure out some organizational forms that can institutionalize those things too, so I can stop thinking about them.
1: I guess all I want to say is that don't beat yourself up too much. We're all in this together and we're all learning and you're not going to be perfect. I know you put your heart into a lot of this. You spend a lot of time on it. You really try to make this work, your directly democratic neighborhood assembly. I know stakes are high and I know politics is important and we need outcomes, but just like, you can't do it all yourself. All you can do is try to help.
0: Totally. Yeah. I feel like these institutions and the experiences that they're giving me and others the sort of joyful and new experience of participating in something where you're equals and you can try to do what's right together these assemblies that we've been putting together are changing the way that people think about the world in a really beautiful way. It's metaphorically speaking, we're helping increase the richness of the soil. We're helping adapt to the weather or whatever sort of metaphor within this realm. I think there's a lot of really beautiful metaphors that we could flesh out here if we had more time, but this this train ride's only so long.
1: Yeah. Oh, if only it was the forever train. (laughs) Uh, That would probably get old too, but...
0: Yeah, it's like the first step is like running into each other the second step is deciding to take the train at the same time intentionally as an act of will and then the third is to create a trans-dimensional hyper train where we're able to permanently ride on the train and infinitely explore every angle of these ideas forming complete totalizing arguments that exhaust every piece of every part of this picture and that that's called heaven and that's where friends get to go
1: Yeah, I mean, I like to believe there's infinite heavens and that when we die, we'll be in one heaven that's that, this train forever, but we'll also be in a heaven that's, say, it's the best hug you ever got from your mom over and over again. Anyway, that's just a weird personal belief I have about infinite heavens. I
0: think that infinite heavens belief is not something people usually say, but I agree 100%. The only heaven wouldn't be just having great conversations with you on a train, although it's a treasured part of my week. And also, obviously, I have a heaven where I'm with my children and my most immediate loved ones. And I'm not threatened by that. And I'm not threatened by you feeling that you need to say you're not threatened. So that's great.
1: I, I see your family as beans that are putting more nitrogen into your soil that helps me grow, you know?
0: Exactly. Well, and you know, my partner, they said the same thing about these train rides. They said, well, there is something on the soil there because you are just growing big plums, metaphorically speaking. Plums being care for the family and, and so on. Right, right. Oh, yeah. I assumed.
1: Anyway, great ride this week.
0: Yeah, that's trains. That's gardens. That's social ecology in a nutshell. See you, Mortimer. Well, it was good riding with you. I'm going to wait here for my ride. My old pastime, putting the wit in Twitter with acerbic commentary on current events that my followers have come to know and love. Mm-mm. Oh, Nice a lot of retweets. There's nothing revolutionary about working yourself to burnout. Leisure and contemplation are nourishing. You're more than your productivity. You don't need to be a superhero. Vacation time is revolutionary. That's just blowing up right now. That's neat. Whoa, I'm actually getting a lot of followers. That's kind of a big responsibility.
1: Will Mortimer use his newfound platform responsibly? What kinds of possibilities will his excellent ability to form ideas into small, digestible chunks bring him? Is it really true that teens can't be superheroes? The answer to all these questions and more is coming up at the end of this episode, after the theme song. You have to stay tuned to the very end to get satisfaction on this dangling thread. I'm back to the show.
0: So over the course of these episodes, we've been spending some time with really wonderful and brilliant teachers of social ecology. We've massaged a lot of interview time, educational time, into a presentation that can really get to the main points and be something that can serve as a point of reference. The choice to put the ideas front and center and emphasize less the personalities involved is a conscious one. But in support of this big argument, this argument about wholeness and direct democracy in nature, I think it's really important that we're able to see some of the richness and fullness of a community that's full of people who have these vibrant differences that are complementary. And we thought it'd be appropriate to save some of the gems, save some of the really interesting and thrilling parts of the interviews that we had to help share a little more about each of them.
1: Yeah. It, like it's really worth it to spend a bit of time getting to know them a little bit. And we also get to know Bookchin a little bit more through this audio because a lot of these people knew Bookchin and have stories about meeting him and what he was like. And we really wanted to be able to include that because while it's not the most important thing about the ideas who the people are behind it, it also is important at the same time.
0: Each of these people deserves their own attention out in the world. Like if you want to learn more about these things, these are some places to start and some people to look to. Each of them have
1: dynamic, relevant backgrounds and academic specialties and knowledge bases and credentials and life experiences that help lend a fuller picture to the ideas that have been presented. And we really just wanted to try and give a sense of all of it and just Have a tribute to these social ecological educators who made this possible for us.
0: By putting these stories together, we can also help show how community thrives on difference and how unity and diversity within politics can help lead to thriving. So first, co-founder of the Institute for Social Ecology, Dan Chodokoff,
8: my academic background and training is in cultural anthropology. I got my PhD from the New School for Social Research. Growing up as a teenager in the 60s, you know, I became aware of Murray Bookchin probably when I was 15 or something, 1965. Saw a little pamphlet that he had written. And at that point, I saw myself as a Marxist. So I kind of poo-pooed it, you know, oh, ecology, what relevance does that have to the class struggle? But he made an impression on me. In nineteen seventy two, I was a graduate assistant at Goddard College studying anarchism, and I learned that Murray Bookchin had moved to Burlington. And we started talking, and at that point, a position opened up at Goddard, and they wanted someone to coordinate a lecture series on technology and society. And I said, oh, well, I know just the guy. But of course, Murray didn't coordinate a lecture series on society and technology. He gave a lecture series on society and technology. And uh, it generated a lot of excitement on campus. And out of that grew the idea of a summer program in social ecology, which we did in 1974. And out of that emerged the idea for the Institute.
0: He's the author of a great collection of essays called The Anthropology of Utopia, which I highly recommend reading. I actually tried to buy it off of him once, and he told me that I could have it if I use it for revolutionary work. Very, very cool guy.
8: I have a novel out called Side*, which is about New York's Lower East Side and various forms of political resistance that have gone on there over the years. And I have a new novel coming out this summer called Sugaring Down, which is about a commune in Vermont where I lived for 50 years.
1: I've never met Dan Chodakoff, but he clearly just has been thinking about and expressing these ideas for so long. You can hear the years of experience he has in his voice, and I would just listen to him on a loop explaining things to me forever.
8: I don't think it's realistic to believe we can determine what the first hierarchy was. There are a variety of theories. Bookshen, for example, suggests that the earliest hierarchy was a gerontocracy. As people grew older, they accrued certain wisdom and knowledge and experience, and people looked to them to draw on that, and that gave them a certain kind of power. And as people age, of course, while your mental capacity and your experiential learning may increase, your physical capacity declines. So there was a vested interest in creating a venerated position once you were older in order to ensure that the community continues to support you and value you. There are other people, you know, feminist scholars who suggest that the first form of hierarchy was patriarchy.
0: At one of the ISE conferences, we did Theater of the Oppressed together, which is like you do exercises that sort of get you out of your ego, make you think less about how you're being perceived and stuff like that. And we were paired up for an exercise where we basically had to troll each other for 15 minutes, take on different personas. I remember in particular, the facilitator asked Dan Chodokoff to pretend to be a police officer to me, and it's an unforgettable experience. I also just recommend Theater of the Oppressed generally. It's really interesting.
8: I have a real sense of urgency about this because... We are at an unprecedented point in history where we're we are we're in big trouble. And if we don't make these kinds of changes very soon, there may not be a future for us. I say that with real trepidation. It's a very concerning thing. I have kids and I have grandkids and I want to see a decent world for them.
0: You know? We also spoke to Blair Taylor,
3: the program director at ISC. I first got involved with social ecology, kind of in the wake of the alter globalization movement, the battle for Seattle. I had been politicized in the anarchist and punk and anti-fascist movements, reading anarchist and environmental literature. And I saved up some money and went out to the ISE and spent a month at what we called at the time anarchist summer camp, had my mind blown. I kept going back and it just became my political and intellectual home. Did a PhD in political science. Murray Bookchin died in 2006, which was also the year that we had to sell our campus. So since then, we've been trying to figure out how to maintain the Institute for Popular Education, Radical Education, without having an actual physical base. I was hired in 2016 to roll out a series of online courses, the distillation of what used to be our month-long program called Ecology and Community. We have another course called Rethinking Social Transformation, which focuses more on questions of political strategy another course called Understanding Antisemitism, and a new one on Frankfurt School Critical Theory. I was kind of a skeptic of online education. It's turned into a really amazing global learning community. met a lot of these folks in person. We offer flexible and self-directed courses that people can take in addition to the ones that actually meet in real time.
0: Blair was the first person that we spoke to in this whole process. And there's also the editor of the Harbinger Journal, which is an online publication of social ecological writing, which has just got restarted um, after some time being dormant.
3: My vision for it as the editor-in-chief is to create new social ecological theory, trying to expand, diversify, question some of these tenets. It's not a monolithic block of ideas. Not everybody agrees. We're not these bookchinites, da-da-da-da-da, quoting chapter and verse. There's plenty to criticize. There's plenty that needs to be revised. It's already happening, but I'm looking forward to a explosion of new thinkers and writers working within this tradition, grappling with these ideas, building on and filling in gaps and expanding into new areas. Blair's always got a lot
0: of really interesting historical context and he's always describing things really effectively in ways of the context in which they arose or what it was up against at the time and stuff like that. Yeah,
1: what social movements were going on, how this differed with those movements or played into them
3: or history of how these ideas came to be in the real world. Classical liberalism, most Western thought, is a dualism of nature and society. Deep ecology, in many ways, offered a monism in its place, undifferentiated nature, where everything has equal intrinsic value. Bookchin tries to dialectically balance out these two perspectives. You know, he talks about the problem of anthropocentrism, and fair as being urso-centric. That's actually the natural way most species are, but humans are actually the only species that can consciously take into consideration other species' well-being, and that makes us very unique. And in fact, in that regard, we should be more, not less, anthropocentric. We teach a lot on nature philosophy, and it seems abstract, but they actually played out in very concrete ways in terms of like what those movements looked like, what they prioritized, what their discourse was. There's a whole dark history of right-wing versions of, if not explicitly deep ecology, then, you know, fellow travelers. Environmental conservation movements that were very patrician, that were very racist, had strong ties to eugenics movements, positions against immigration. For HIV, all these things that they thought were going to limit the population. People like Savitri Devi, the Nazi animal rights activist inspired by Hitler. And it comes back in different forms. The Dark Mountain Project of Paul Kingsnorth, he was active in the alter globalization movement and got demoralized by the slow pace of change and has become basically an eco-nationalist. Pentti Linkola, the Finnish deep ecologist, who's a fascist, you know, anti-immigrant ideologue. Ecology and environmentalism for a lot of people was like the green slogan, neither left nor right, but forward or ahead, that it's beyond politics. It's just pure, objective, natural. When the greens tried to use it in Germany, and then we took it up here, social ecologists were arguing against it because they knew how that had been used in national socialism and also knew that national socialism actually had a very strong ecological perspective that was rooted in this kind of quasi-deep ecological blood and soil folkish idea that if you still get at the kind of imaginary of many ecologists of this kind of like bucolic prairie self sufficiency, which means largely white, you know this is why social ecologists are some of the foremost people writing about ecofascism because we've been warning about climate barbarism. We're already seeing in the terms of the response to migration patterns around the world, the Mediterranean is turning into a, a watery cemetery. I mean, those people are fleeing war, but those. Things are also bound up in issues of climate change and desertification in the Middle East and North Africa. So it's already here. And more and more people, I think, are becoming aware of the climate component of it. And that's what's so scary about ecofascism is that they're just going to give ecological arguments for what they're already doing and advocating.
0: Really super invaluable contributions, because when you see the whole context of the way that these ideas developed, who the antagonists were at different times, or who Bookchin was responding to when he said X or Y, I mean, this is really, really important context for understanding what Bookchin was on about.
3: We can talk more about Dianat, and there's social ecologists that are critical of it to various degrees, including myself, the value of trying to root a political social ethics in the natural world or in evolution, which obviously has a very dark history and has gone in very nasty, social Darwinistic, genocidal directions.
0: Also this episode, we had Brian Tokar, former director of the Institute for Social Ecology, board member, author of a number of books,
6: I came of age as an activist during a really tricky time. I had the misfortune of starting university in immediately after the last wave of very large mobilizations against the Vietnam War, and the movements of the 60s had become almost invisible. There were trials of people who had been arrested at various actions in the previous year, but not a lot else going on. And this was a real shock to me. There were all these very cultish Marxist-Leninist sects Trying to sweep up what was left of the radical energies. And this was all very perplexing. And somebody handed me a copy of Murray Bookchin's pamphlet, Listen, Marxist, where he really described not just what was wrong with that authoritarian Marxist Leninist outlook on organizing and activism, but began to map out an alternative. And then I learned that he was teaching in Vermont every summer and started traveling up here. I didn't have a car at the time. I would hitchhike up here when I had some time off from my job and continue to do that. During the years, I was in grad school doing kind of mainstream laboratory science and eventually came to see that a couple of weeks I was able to spend here in Vermont in a lot of ways mattered more to me than what I was doing the rest of the year and eventually got out of doing mainstream science and moved to Vermont and studied with Murray in Burlington for a few years, and then started getting involved with the Institute. My latest book is Toward Climate Justice, which came out as a revised edition in 2014. And I've got a new book, an international collection on grassroots climate responses called Climate Justice and Community Renewal. And that has about 15 contributed chapters from all around the world.
0: I think the first time I saw Brian Tokar speak was at an ISE gathering where he gave a presentation basically summarizing the science of climate change, what we know, what the trajectories are, and stuff like that. And it scared the shit out of me.
1: Yeah, that was right before we did the eco episodes, right?
0: It was, yeah. So Brian Tokar could be seen as a major influence in the eco episodes.
1: His whole interview is filled with amazing, if this had just been a climate episode, it would have been the Brian Tokar show.
6: We can change the way we live. We can change our economic system. It starts with redesigning our energy system and transportation and the way we heat our homes. Those are the three main sources of excess carbon emissions right now. The technologies exist to do that. We know we can design cars differently. We know we have highly efficient heating systems. We know we can power our electric grid with solar and wind energy. The intermittency problem is an engineering problem that has been largely solved and that's even before the kinds of improvements in batteries and other storage technologies that are really right around the corner. There are places in Europe that various times of the year are getting more than half their electricity from renewable sources. There's a recent paper that spells out scenarios for something like 140 countries around the world using technologies that we already have, but accelerating their development and deployment in a way that stabilizes the situation and gets us to a place where we're no longer emitting excess carbon dioxide by the middle of this century. Though so we have the technology, the main obstacle, again, is the extreme profitability and political influence of the fossil fuel industry.
0: Next up, Grace Gershuni.
6: I have
7: been involved with the organic movement all my adult life. I developed one of the first organic certification programs in the Northeast in the 70s, and that led to being recruited to join the staff of the U.S. Department of Agriculture in the 90s to help develop the national organic Program. So for five years, I worked for USDA and wrote the organic standards. I have been involved with the Institute for Social Ecology since 1986, when I joined as a faculty to teach bioregional agriculture. I wrote a book, Organic Revolutionary a memoir of the movement for real food, planetary healing, and human liberation. Third edition just published by Black Rose Books before they closed the borders and I couldn't go to Montreal again.
0: Any book that we mention or magazine, we're going to have a link in the description here.
1: I really appreciated having Grace in this episode. It helped demonstrate some of the real academic diversity and people who are interested in social ecology.
0: Grace was really fun to talk to. We spoke about a variety of topics, not of all which made it into this episode.
1: The other piece
7: of what I've taken away from my experiences with the organic movement is to crusade against the demand for purity. Examples of the quest for purity in the food system are the story of sugar and our major food grains and cotton, all of which are processed in a way to remove impurities and create whiteness and were the original sources of capitalist enterprise, particularly cotton and sugar in the so-called New World, which were entirely dependent on the institution of slavery and racist structure that continues to be the shame of this part of the world and the colonial powers. I mean, I can't tell you how fundamental racism is to the food system, and that is one of the great evils of our current food system.
0: Her particular knowledge around the hard ecology side of social ecology, massively useful.
1: All that really specific soil health information and the ways that it connects to politics.
7: Bookshen, he was a force of nature. There's no question about it. He was a genius and he had an incredible ability to synthesize, articulate, and to support these ideas. To really have a serious confrontation with him was terrifying. I mean, he brought a certain passion to his argumentation that it was just like this fire and brimstone of a preacher, in a way. He's well known for having alienated people who raised questions about things. The idea that Buddhism, for example, had anything to offer social ecology was a subject of disdain, and and we've lost students who would have had a great deal to contribute. So that's really, I consider that to be one of his flaws, as well as one of his gifts in terms of his passion and oratorical ability. So,
0: double-edged sword. So next up, Eleanor Finley.
2: I'm an anthropologist, and I've been a social ecologist for almost 10 years.
0: She's a contributor to Roar magazine, and she's been a board member at the Institute for ISE and an educator.
2: These direct democracies, by the way, did not only exist in Athens. That is a myth. When you really look at the history, and I would really recommend a book called The Life and Death of Democracy by an Australian historian named John Keane about direct democracies that really permeated the entire Eastern half of the Mediterranean from Algeria to Italy, you know, hundreds of years before Athens. He argues the tradition of direct democracy actually came from the East. It came from Anatolia. It came from Syria. So roots of direct democracy actually go deeper than any of us have realized. In fact, the example Athens was so obvious and persisted for so long, was the most visible, ironically, because it was in many ways the most authoritarian and top-down society that was heavily militarized and inscribed its history, you know, through conquest of its neighbors.
0: Really, my compliments to Eleanor, her education skills are amazing. Her audio really helped pull
1: together so many of the sections. She says things in such a clear, direct, simple way that allowed me to pull together things other people were saying. And it just really can't speak highly enough about how helpful Eleanor's audio in particular was in me editing this episode.
2: Well, that's kind of like the beautiful paradox of the particular and the universal, right? Every assertion of the particular is an appeal to the universal. Like every assertion that Black lives matter is also an assertion that all lives matter because Black lives are a part of the universal. You're appealing to this idea that we should all be treated equally. So it's been very powerful because also the specific demand to stop killing Black people. Like it's such a basic human right. We shouldn't even have to be asking for it. And yet under the current system, it's so impossible, you know, like everything that the system throws at us, you know, like, oh, we'll just reform that or oh, the cops are going to kneel and shake hands with fucking protesters like it's like, no, stop killing fucking unarmed black people.
0: It's true for Eleanor, but it's also true for everyone we're going to talk about. You can find more of these people speaking on YouTube if you search up their name, doing lectures on related topics, educational lectures. I recently watched Eleanor and Dan present social ecology together at some old conference, and it's just really, really killer stuff.
2: I think a really essential part of social ecology as a political philosophy, and maybe this gets into the utopian versus scientific understanding of socialism, but social ecology at the end of the day, also asserts that it's simply good for people to be together. We want to be together. It's good to enjoy each other.
0: We're also joined this episode by Peter Staudenmeyer.
5: I'm a longtime faculty member at the Institute. I'm a historian by training. That's what I do in my day job. I teach modern European history. I've been involved in anarchist movements and radical ecological movements. A lot of my published work is available online at the ISE website.
0: He is an expert on the way fascist movements use the occult and use ideas around ecology to push their repressive, horrible ideas. He's the co-author, along with Janet Beale, of Ecofascism Revisited, Lessons from the German Experience. I haven't had the chance to read his book, but it's been highly recommended to me as essential anti-fascist reading. And he was really fun to talk to. It was like a great conversation, really, really enjoyable.
5: The way I came to social ecology initially was in the 1980s, and I was pretty deeply involved in early green, organizing green with a capital G for better or worse. At that time, keeping in mind that I was a very young man, I probably could have been more accurately described as a deep ecologist. And one of the first talks that I ever saw Bookchin give was a full-on, head-on attack on deep ecology. And I was thinking to myself, Who is this guy? Why is he ragging on these ideas that I thought were kind of inspiring and awesome and had all this potential? I decided I would start reading this Bookchin guy so I could prove how wrong he was. And I started reading sort of semi systematically through Bookchin's work or the parts of it that I could get my hands on. And the further and further I went, I kept having the same experience where I'd basically throw down the pamphlet I was reading or throw down the book I was reading and I'd say, damn it he's right again. And it annoyed the hell out of me because I wanted him to be wrong.
1: I loved hearing him tear into the Jordan Peterson stuff. And I really appreciate his kind of contrarian pose that he takes towards some of the social ecological stuff, really just being there to be like, well, yeah, I agree most of the way in spirit, but also, but actually one little thing that I think I kind of disagree with, I couldn't use a lot of it in the episode, but I love having Peter on board.
0: Yeah, Peter's someone in the process who helped to pin down some of those really interesting debating points, and he was a good voice of, well, not everyone has to think everything about everything that certain way. Yeah. There's bigger things at play than whether or not chickens have some sort of proto-hierarchy. And my understanding is that he had these exact debates with Bookchin in front of rooms of students as an educator.
5: I only knew Murray personally in the last two decades of his life. So I knew the older curmudgeonly Murray Bookchin, and he could be a real curmudgeon. He could get cranky. He could misunderstand what someone had just said to him and fly off the handle because he thought they were saying something terrible and appalling, when actually they were saying something very mild. That was one side of him. But the other side of the Murray Bookchin that I knew was the side who would listen deeply to what someone else was saying. He would disagree vigorously with it, but he would give it the time to think through why. His ability to engage in a kind of intellectual generosity was extremely impressive. And one of the best examples of that came, I don't know, maybe three weeks into this summer where I was both his teaching assistant and a little bit his chauffeur. And he and I have been having this long standing debate about a series of things that we never ended up agreeing on, which is totally cool with both of us. I think it might have been that question of some pretty profound philosophical disagreements about the notion of deriving an ethics from the natural world. It's always been sort of a challenging and controversial topic. So he and I have been arguing about it in the car. He then gets to the ISE. We set him up in his chair and he gives this two hour long spontaneous lecture without a single note in front of him, giving about the most convincing version of his argument that I thought was wrong that I'd ever seen. And at the end of it, people clap. And instead of sort of soaking up the adulation of his students at the Institute, Murray immediately turns to me and says, Peter, you're not convinced. (laughs) And he was right. I wasn't convinced. And he said, tell these people why you don't agree with me. So he puts, I'm just some guy, you know, I'm just his teaching assistant. He puts me up on the stand, so to speak, and has me explain the counter argument to everything that he had just said. And then he opens up the floor and we have this sprawling, massive, extremely thoughtful, productive debate among the people who were present. I thought that was just a fantastic example of the way that you can use polemic, and critique in fruitful ways that open things up rather than shutting things down.
0: And finally, we had two wonderful interviews with Haya Heller.
4: I've been part of the Institute for Social Ecology for 36 years. I joined in 1984. I had a friend who was supposed to become part of the collective of the ISC and work in the kitchen. A week before the program, she decided to work at her local food (laughs) co-op instead. So I actually called Betsy Chodokoff, who's married to Dan, and I said, hi, I'm Alana's friend and you don't know me, but I really feel like I want to be there. The first or second day that I was there, I see this old man, you know, now I'm nearly his age, so he wasn't so old, but I thought he was really old, walking around with suspenders and he might have been wearing a tie. He looked so nerdy and out of place. And I was a philosophy major in college at the time. And this man was a philosopher whose whole reason for being was to create a philosophy that was in service to humanity and to the rest of the natural world. And so I cooked in the kitchen for the first two summers as a work exchange, and I got time off to take Murray's lectures, and he would do a lecture every day, and then at night, he'd have an advanced seminar, and then an advanced advanced seminar, and then an advanced advanced, <laughs> advanced seminar. I just felt like a kid in a candy shop, and I was like, how awesome is this? At the end of the summer, I asked if I could join the collective, and the next summer, I actually came back as assistant teacher of the Feminism and Ecology class. I taught feminism and ecology, and then I taught the philosophy and politics of social ecology at the ISC for 22 summers. I wrote a book called Food, Farms, and Solidarity, and I have a book that I wrote on social ecofeminism called The Ecology of Everyday Life, Rethinking the Desire for Nature.
0: This is a book that was recommended by a member of the book club that we run through discord we read one of the chapters in the book club called the five fingers of social desire where she draws a metaphor between the hand and five nested interconnected types of social desire in people's everyday life starting with and including just the most basic desire which is to know the things around you by perceiving them touching them like a baby grasping to touch the things around it going all the way up with the desire to reform society I found this chapter just really, really intellectually stimulating to the point where all of my thoughts were framed through what she outlines for like a couple weeks after that. And I'm sure Aaron, you remember when I just kept on touching your couch and acting like it was profound (laughs) because I wanted, I desired it.
1: Yeah, I read that chapter too. And with that, and like a lot of the things I've heard Haya say in speaking, I feel like the wisdom of it sometimes sneaks up on me. And it's just, I go back and re-listen and I'm like, oh damn, that's like dense and interesting.
0: Totally. I've gained a lot through the process of hearing this stuff more than once during the editing and production process, not just with Haya, but also with others. Yeah, And a lot of the insights of social ecology are in that sort of category where when you first hear it, you're like, well, that seems true, but it doesn't seem particularly super true. But then two weeks later, you're like, oh, I can't stop thinking about that particularly super true thing.
4: <laughs> been active in anarchist organizing for decades. The Burlington Greens, we used to fight with Bernie Sanders that we used to call fake socialists. He wanted to develop the entire waterfront, destroy the wetlands, privatize it, give it to luxury hotels and luxury condos. And we had a campaign. We fought against Bernie Sanders, the fake socialist who called ecology bourgeois. It was, you know, not central and that he was just for workers and jobs and I'm going to give people jobs. To build the luxury condos and, and and the hotels, and to see Bernie on TV going on about climate is just it's mind blowing. If you go to Burlington, Vermont, the waterfront there's a public boardwalk and a boathouse, and the wetlands are preserved, and that was because of Murray Bookshen and the Burlington Greens.
1: This series, and especially the latter two episodes, don't exist without Haya Heller. But go back and listen to the end of Capitalism. She's in every segment she's the backbone of this whole thing.
4: You know, one of the trippiest things for me, like I said, I'm older, I'm 57, (laughs) is watching Murray get turned into a meme. That is just the most bizarre thing. You know, all these different websites and Facebook pages. And, you know, for me, he was Murray. Like I said, he was my very dear friend. It's a very uncanny feeling to watch your dear friend become kind of a historical figure that's circulated through social media. It's kind of thrilling and Perplexing at the same time. I often wonder what Marie would think of the way he's represented sometimes as kind of the cutesification, the way old people are cutesified. Marie was not cute. <laughs> the memes make him look really cute and adorable. He was the kindest person that I've ever known, the most generous person I've ever known, truly lovely. When he was dying, one of our last conversations, he just was a very emotional person and he was sort of teary and he said, Hiya, I. Feel so sorry for you and your daughter and my kids and everybody I know. When I was writing about global warming in the 50s, I thought it was hundreds of years away. And that was, you know, he died in 2006. He could not believe how fast it was happening.
0: I think there's an obvious sadness thinking of what it would be like to see eco apocalyptic capitalism unfold (laughs) over the course of your lifetime. But I also think that story can be a real impetus to action for us. It's moving way faster than was thought of, of you know, pioneers of leftist ecological thought. It means that we're going to have to find ways to move faster and that we have an opportunity to, you know, this might sound sort of silly, I guess, but to reassure Bookchin, to get the planet on the right path, to make that worrying not in vain, but an impetus to action.
1: Yeah, to do right by him and his memory. And the memory of everybody who has been fighting for this stuff. Yeah, I just vibe with that, this desire to not want to let history down.
0: You know, and a really fascinating and I think moving part about this to me, to see people talking about Bookchin in particular as a revolutionary thinker, you know, he in the later year, late 90s, early 2000s, he felt like the battle was kind of being lost, you know, he felt like the ethical, rational ideas weren't winning out and that we were maybe heading into sort of a dark age. Um, he, he wrote about this. But I saw this really amazing clip of Janet Beale, Murray Bookchin's partner at the end of his life, talking about the relationship between Oshelon, who we talked about earlier, and Murray Bookchin, which is it's a very short relationship overall. Bookchin was quite old and his health was failing and Oshelon already on an island prison in Turkey. So I'll let Janet Beale explain
9: I must say that Bookchin's communalist movement never got anywhere near as far as the Kurdish movement has, in practical terms. But one thing I could suggest here is that the concept of a transitional program, which Bookchin would invoke in such occasions, he used to distinguish between the minimum program, which is reforms on specific issues, the transitional program, like perhaps this one that Orgeland is offering, and the maximum program, socialism, a stateless assembly democracy. Minimum, transitional, maximal. That distinction, by the way, has a revolutionary pedigree. Murray used to credit it to Trotsky. It's a way to maintain a commitment to your long-term goals and principles while dealing in the real non-revolutionary world. In any case, in May 2004, when Bookchin heard from Ocalan, through the lawyers, he conveyed back a message, quote, my hope is that the Kurdish people will one day be able to establish a free, rational society that will allow their brilliance to once again flourish. They are fortunate, indeed, to have a leader of Mr. Ocalan's talents to guide them, unquote. We later learned that this message was read aloud at the Second General Assembly of the Kurdistan People's Congress in the summer of 2004. When Bookchin died in July of 2006, After he died, the PKK assembly saluted one of the greatest social scientists of the 20th century. He introduced us to the thought of social ecology and helped to develop socialist theory in order for it to to advance on a firmer basis. (laughs) He he showed them how to make it a reality. He has proposed the concept of confederalism a model which we believe is creative and realizable. The PKK assembly continued. Bookchin's thesis on the state, thank you, power and hierarchy will be implemented and realized through our struggle. We will put this promise into practice. This as the first society that establishes a tangible democratic confederalism. My friends, no tribute could have made him happier. I only wish he could have heard it. Perhaps he would have saluted them back with that first recorded word for freedom from Sumer. Amargi. Thank
1: you. I think we're going to leave it there with that beautiful tribute from the Kurdish people and from Janet Beale to Murray Bookchin, the founding thinker of social ecology, There's still one more sketch, of course, coming up after the theme song. But other than that, that's the end of our social ecology trilogy. I gotta say, it's been a long road getting here. We've spent more time putting these episodes together than we've spent on anything that we've ever done.
0: What we've probably first started discussing it late 2019, because of coronavirus and other things, the process has been a little slower than we anticipated at points. I think it's ended up making a better episode in some ways. Like We've been able to put some extra time into it and extra thought.
1: Well, I mean, our original vision was to fit this all somehow into one episode, so I mean... Definitely going through the process helped us shape this into something that I hope is helpful for people and inspiring to people
0: so thank you to our seven incredible guests thank you to the people at the ISE who helped on the back end and i also want to thank our generous wonderful beautiful genius patrons who made this happen we couldn't have done this without the help that they've given us over the last handful of months while we're putting this together absolutely for both their gifts but also patience and support their kind words saying stuff like make good episodes it's okay you're just a human etc really really appreciate that yeah when you're used to putting stuff out all the time it can feel a bit
1: terrifying to not be putting stuff out constantly our lovely patrons are very reassuring
0: i hope that you have had a nice time listening to it it was fun you learned something from it it was enjoyable you got a better idea of where social ecology is coming from what that bookchin guy was on about and why because i feel that like this is an incredibly valuable school of thought that i've gained a lot of enriching insights by engaging with thank you so much everyone yeah thanks for listening So much just to say I'm someone else Nope, There's Godfrey, you're not drinking social <laughs> it's, of the best Stupid, it's really okay. stupid.
1: It's really I can't okay. believe I thought that tweet-sized dunk would land. Barely got any retweets. I'll never succeed. I'm never going to convince people with my tweets. not fit to be a ranger.
0: Hey, Godfrey, R- what are you doing in here? Oh. You're supposed to meet me at the dojo 20 minutes ago. Oh, hey, Smedley. We're supposed to be sparring right now, man. I've just been sitting here in the dark. Come on, get your karate pants on. <sighs> here let me at least turn the light on oh i think i'm quitting the rangers godfrey is this about the tweet thing missing it yeah
1: It's about the tweet
0: thing. You don't have to, like, beat yourself up. It's not all about you. I could have destroyed capitalism. I had a shot. Well, who knows? Maybe it was impossible for anyone to make that shot. And even if you did mess up, why are you defined by that? You've done so much work. Look, we function as a team together. To take that as your failure instead of all of our failure, and I mean, I'm not saying, like, we should get too hung up on failures in general, but using the example of a basketball game, man, it's like the whole team had a whole game to score points. Why is it coming down to that, you know?
1: Oh, Social Ecology Rangers! You're needed at the Non-Command Base Facilitation Center! (sighs) Always in dojo time. You coming? Ah, yeah. Duty calls. Judy calls.
0: <laughs> social Ecology Rangers. I know that for many of you this is dojo time, and your sparring is important to you, but there's something else that's important to the world. There is a new social ecology ranger. What? A, a
1: new, ranger. new social rangers. ecology ranger? As you
0: all know, a successful team is formed out of complementary pieces, and to that end, we've recruited a ranger who excels at the art and science of bumper sticker making. We found him on Twitter. Meet Mortimer. Uh, hey, Mortimer. Nice to meet you guys. I guess I'm not just a regular teen anymore, but I'm actually part of the, the team with you also. You're pretty
1: good at bumper stickers, hey? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That tweet about not burning yourself
0: out, that one went viral. A lot of people saw it. I, I don't know what to say. We interrupt this previously scheduled episode of Social Ecology Rangers to bring breaking news updates from a precedent-setting Supreme Court case.
1: Now as we all know, the Emperor made Fullness Goggles illegal in a surprise move last month, and had many of the Fullness Five torn apart by starving dogs. But now they're saying that they've been unfairly treated, and have taken them to civil rights court.
0: The Fullness Five, which is these days looking more like a Fullness 3.6 because they were chewed by starving dogs so much, allege a criminal conspiracy to the highest levels of power to starve dogs unjustly and sick them on innocent people. The Emperor's counterclaim states Fullness
1: goggles are dangerous and cause delusions.
0: We now go to the courtroom where the Fullness Five lawyers are presenting their most devastating evidence
1: yet. Now, Your Honor, we've heard a lot of things here today about how fullness goggles are a danger to society. It is my firm belief that anyone who actually tries these goggles on will know that that's not true. And furthermore, in order to understand the full picture of what's going on here with this case, and with the emperor, and all of his shadowy connections, you really can't understand it unless you put on the fullness goggles. And so as Exhibit 47, I enter into evidence how the world looks through fullness goggles, and I ask that the judges put them on and see for themselves.
0: Now this is very unorthodox, but we'll give it a shot. Just put it on and, and uh, hit the switch and... Oh, oh wow. Oh my goodness, I can see it all. I really can't. The the Emperor and the CEO of 1% Escapes and Nosh and Ronar from the Boss Spot podcast and just a ton of well-connected insiders. They're running a dog-starving ring. They're trying to limit the way that people can think and see. Fullness Goggles allows people to see the truth about them and the society that gives rise to them and that would give rise to other people like them even if they weren't there. It all all makes perfect sense. I I think we can only possibly rule in favor of, of, of...
1: We interrupt this publicly broadcasted court case with some breaking news. It seems that the emperor has been busy 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 today passing a brand new omnibus crime bill that might have an effect on this ongoing case.
0: This new omnibus crime bill makes it unlawful to consider fullness goggles and the experience therein as a type of evidence in court. It retroactively pardons all dog-starving rings and makes it illegal to think that a better world is possible or express or privately feel that something went wrong in the Fullness Five case. All of the Emperor's remaining unjailed critics are hailing this move as positive and have offered up their private thoughts for inspection.
1: Now I've always said private thoughts are where bad behavior begins. So I'm not going to jail for disagreeing with this law.
0: I'm not going to jail for disagreeing with this law either because I just simply don't disagree. In order to enforce this law, the emperor has sicked a hellish titan, death machine, authoritarian capitalism on the domestic population to do surveillance and root out those who do not meet the new legal requirements. Today's broadcast of Emperor World News is brought to you by Family Day at Amusement
1: Kingdom. Do all the new laws and people being torn apart by dogs have you and your family feeling tense? Come on down to Amusement Kingdom for a relaxing, wholesome, family, fun time. Get a picture with Bippy, our starving dog mascot. Fire employees in our VR boardrooms.
0: Wow, Mom, I'm having so much fun. I love Family Day at Amusement Kingdom.
1: And that smile on your precious little face makes it all worthwhile for me. This has been the best day of my life. Now you can pick any ride you want to go on.
0: Can we get lunch? Ah, Oh my God, what is it? Hey, You stay away from my boy. Uh, Mom, it's the death machine of capitalism. Don't imagine anything better, and it won't hurt you. Mom, I have private thoughts that a better world is possible. No, you
1: don't. You don't have those thoughts. Not my boy. I do, Mom, privately. No, ah, oh, no. Someone ah, save us. Somebody help us. Wh- who is that? Is that a superhero team? Five members? Oh, no, there's six.
0: What's going on? Non-hierarchical direct democracy. Municipal communism. Use of property relationships. Ecological technology for post-scarcity. A positive piece, which is the presence of justice. I don't have a name yet, I'm new. How do I get one? Social Ecology Rangers!
1: All right team, let's stop capitalism
0: from taking over the theme park. Organize. Capitalism's decreasing the safety regulations on the rides. They're willing to put a price on the life of a child. No, capitalism's reducing the quality and the nutrition of the carnival food. Capitalism's using casino-like tactics to hook children on expensive, addictive games. They're putting profits ahead of family fun.
1: Capitalism, you can divide and stratify humanity. Destroy the biosphere, limit human imagination, and deprive millions of their basic needs. But when you come for family fun, that's when you've gone too far.
0: Red Ranger, look out! <laughs> Capitalism's paralyzing him with crippling death.
1: Everybody, watch
0: out! Capitalism's using the parents' love of their children to extort them into supporting it. Oh, the people are turning on us. They're so afraid of instability, they're defending their own attacker. <laughs>
1: and if they don't support capitalism, their children will ah. starve. Ah!
0: ah. ah. Things aren't looking good, team. I don't know that an alternative's possible here. Maybe we should give up. Oh, Gordon,
1: this might be the end of the Social Ecology Rangers once and for all.
0: Things look bleak, Omega-6, but have faith, these are special teams.
1: Hey, new guy, we could use a viral tweet to change public opinion right about now.
0: Oh, I'm trying, but I'm just getting so annoyed
1: with the blue checks. Keep your eye on the prize, man. The blue checks are just a symptom of the social
0: stratification. They're not the source of the problem. All right, here goes. Parents, colon, I want to ensure stability for my children. Same parents five minutes later, colon. Duh. time to support an inherently unstable system and send tweet.
1: It's working. Rather than getting defensive, the parents are taking the criticism at the heart of the dunk on board and they're changing for the better. Funny
0: how parents defend till the death the socioeconomic system that alienates them from their own kids, prevents them from spending time with them, and deprives them both of family fun, dot dot dot. But that's none of my business, Kermit the Frog sipping tea, JPEG. Keep it up! They're being convinced! Talked to a parent today who said that even though they agree with me that capitalism is a system of child sacrifice, they need to fight for it so their children's already limited opportunities won't be as badly limited as other kids, dot dot dot. Saying the quiet part out loud. S-M-D-H send tweet.
1: Yes. Yes, the parents are all banding together
0: to assert their own rights. Stand up to the bosses and the kings. They're surrounding the mighty beast, subduing it with ropes and pulleys like Gulliver's Travels, holding capitalism to the ground in a chaotic maelstrom of willing hands. This might be our chance, team. Capitalism's held down by public opinion. We need someone verbose and articulate to finish it off. Godfrey.
1: Godfrey, this is your moment. Me? But no, but guys, I messed up last time. I can't deal with this pressure.
0: They're holding its weak spot open, just explain capitalism why it's wrong. Take as much time as you need.
1: Uh, Okay, but I'll have to do it through the lens of of usufructian property relationships, my ranger type. Okay, here it goes. Property rights can be understood as being split into three distinct parts. Usus, fructus, and abusus. Usufruct is a combination of the first two, the right to the use and enjoyment of a given good. Abusus rights are the right to destroy. A society based on usufructian property relationships means a society where all property is held in common for the use and enjoyment of all. This may sound strange, but consider the example of a library. A library is a publicly owned institution that holds the collective catalogue of human thought in trust for all people in the form of books and other media, even access to the internet, for their use and their enjoyment, but it doesn't let people destroy the books. The benefits of this type of property relationship are many not least of which is the ability to do more with less and meet more people's needs with less material resource investment and therefore lower ecological impact. Some say a society based on usufruct would function as a giant library society where not only books but all consumer goods would be built to last and available to everyone to check out of the giant library where all people's needs would be taken care of. This is also an inherently democratic mode of property relationships and I will now explain why in detail. Five hours later. And so, with all of those conditions met, we will finally have a sufficient basis for a sustainable, luxuriant future of circulating abundance. We did it capitalism's too exhausted to fight back anymore. Oh, and it's weakened state. It was unable to rationalize away all the important and devastating arguments against it. You did it, Godfrey. The things
0: that make you special helped us beat capitalism.
1: We all did it. Together. All six of us. Oh,
0: well, and don't forget the parents that helped, too. Oh, yeah. Who knew the parents would be the revolutionary subject? And what turned them around would be Twitter donks? Like, how random and contingent historically is that? I mean, it could have been any weird yeah. thing that happened. It just happened to be that? Come on, team. Let's scrap this disgusting- monster for parts. A little creative democratic reinterpretation of a lot of these things could actually turn this place into a theme park worth passing on to your kids. Guys, now that
1: capitalism is ended, could we get some pizza? Smedley!
0: (laughs) 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 Always the pizza with
5: this
1: Uh, guy. Classic
0: (laughs) Smedley. And so, the people of that universe set out on the task of turning their world into the good kind of theme park, rooting out capitalist and hierarchical assumptions wherever they found them and slowly transforming society into a truly post-capitalist world, revealing all emperors to be wearing no clothes, turning off all hierarchy goggles, and feeding all starving dogs. A couple
1: decades later, a man who had slipped into a coma that very morning, awoke in this new world to find that society had been transformed around him as he slept. He was surprised, but also delighted, and he continued to reach for the ghost of his wallet. (laughs) For years to come,
0: historians said the actual moment all capitalism was fully abolished on the planet was about 278 years later when two communal bureaucrats signed a paper extinguishing an antiquated trade deal between two territories.
1: Brothers whose last names were bumper sticker and are thought to be descendants of the original bumper sticker bros.
0: At the time, it wasn't noticed by anyone as having significance, just dotting I's and crossing T's.
1: This trajectory of increasing political freedom continued on well past just the end of capitalism into new vistas of freedom that would have been completely unimaginable to those who were alive at the time of these events.
0: As nature itself was rendered more and more self-conscious, the ever-diversifying and complexifying fullness that was its totality continued to grow more rich, more spontaneous, and some would say, more beautiful, and fits and starts with setbacks and wins, on and on into the indefinite future, steered by the ethics and rationality of people working together when they can, unfolding in history. And that continued,
1: ever-changing, for the foreseeable future.
0: Wow, that is a really well-developed nature you got there. So much better than a lot of the crap people are bringing around these days. This one is a beaut, and I think you will
1: love the wonderful strangeness of this specific nature's trajectory towards fullness. It's one of my best.
0: Well, I gotta say, Mr. Sales Other, I'm almost convinced. I'm interested. I just need to think a little bit on it. Do you come back in about, I don't know, 260,000 million quintillion or so years?
1: Absolutely. I respect the need of a selfhood in a void to a little bit of time to consider a purchase before they make it. And that's a small amount of time to us. So see you then.
0: Okay. Bye. Bye everyone. Bye. Bye. bye.
1: Hey, will somebody close those damn curtains? The show's over. Here
0: they come. Woo! Yeah! Curtains! Oh,
1: They're back. I was
0: worried they were gone forever. they right there. I told you they'd be back.